0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest and friend. Uh, why you even thought... How do I introduce you, Freya? Jess, how do you how do you want to be?
1: Either oh. of those, either of those works, Jess. Okay,
0: we're going with Freya because we met initially on Twitter. Uh, Freya, all
1: right, great. How do you? Totally uh,
0: how would you introduce yourself to our to our audience in terms of what you're most excited about and, and what you spend a lot of time thinking about?
1: Uh, yeah, so I uh, I will preface this introduction by saying that it uh, gets done slightly differently every time I I answer that question, but I. I'm very interested in how groups of humans make decisions and how groups of humans act together. And if I look back at everything I've been interested in and and spent time in over my life, it's, it's been an expression of trying to answer that question in some way. So things that I'm particularly interested in right now um, include the very nitty gritty of how do people in small groups work together um, and kind of uh, align with each other. Um, and then like all the way up to how do our like biggest narratives about how society works actually operate and essentially how can we experiment to either change them or make new ones when they're not necessarily serving us? So yeah, I think a lot about social systems and then I also think a lot about relationships um, on the smallest level of one person's relationship with different parts of themselves up to the biggest level of the relationship between, every human and kind of the systems that we live under. So yeah, I guess that's today's answer to that question.
0: How did you get in- interested in all this? Like if you could trace your intellectual history, what has led to an interest in, in human coordination? Because it's, it's something that I, I don't see that many, it seems pretty, pretty, pretty original.
1: So I think there are a handful of things that pointed me towards it. I definitely had strong opinions about, I think the first big institution that I was exposed to was school. And I definitely had very strong opinions about school. I was one of those, like the smart kids that's always bored, that are always bored, but never kind of winning the school game, but also not really losing it, just being really bored or something. And so I think I spent a lot of my high school years daydreaming about how I would create a better I guess like an unschooling system for myself or how I would personally want to be schooled or what kind of school I would create if I were the one in charge. I think that as a child and a teenager, I thought a lot about control and about essentially who had control over my life and what control I had over my own um, and how that influenced my satisfaction with life, I guess. And I think I was a bit of an anarchist in the technical sense, like believing that all power structures were illegitimate or something when I was very young, although I wouldn't have used those words. And then I guess another angle to look at it was I was also very, uh, like I wanted to be an environmentalist when I was a kid. I remember that term, like, and I like wrote it down when they asked you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was a lifeguard for some reason. I didn't really like being at the beach. I don't know why that was an option or an environmentalist. Um, And so I think I, decided I, I had responsibility for the world when I was very young. Um, and I think a lot of people in my generation did. Sometimes it's a bit pathological, but it was this sense of we are the ones that have to fix everything. We're the ones who have to come in and save the world. And, and that's like kind of like the proto-religion that we all kind of like grew up with. So I think that's for all of its many flaws, that's another thing that that kind of I got I was influenced by, and then also, there's something that I can't really take a lot of credit for, but I guess I, I don't. Know, I can thank my genes or something, which is I seem to have a combination of a very like systematic mind, so the kind that you would see in an engineer or anyone else who's really kind of uh, systems driven. But I'm like very, very driven by people. So I actually I had this giant hatred of mathematics like when i was studying it in in high school and i actually stopped studying as quickly as i could because i was like what's this this is pointless there's no you know i don't know why i need this and then several years later i found economics and i found turned out that you needed calculus and suddenly i fell in love with it and the reason was because all of a sudden this training this specific way of learning about the world was in service of helping people or learning about people and i had always cared about that. And I don't know exactly, like I have a lot of theories about this. I definitely have a different approach to a lot of people that I'm close with, or that I work with, or I spend time with or whatever. And I kind of like it. I, I appreciate the kind of place I sit in the views of the world. But yeah, I guess all of those things combined meant I never thought that I wanted to care about anything else you know I I know people who who wanted to be physicists or um, mathematicians or who wanted to go and study something esoteric at, at university and then be an academic and I, I just I couldn't imagine myself ever doing that because I'm like okay but then what about the people what does it do for the people but at the same time I never wanted to do something that was very I actually think I'm when I was younger, I wanted—I didn't want to do things that were more uh, caring or uh, like emotional labor um, because I saw them as inefficient or something. And now I, I don't necessarily think that anymore. That was kind of a very naive view, but yeah, it was always this combination of essentially like compassion and scale or something that uh, I've always kept coming back to.
0: Compassion, and scale. Like, say more about that. How have you kept coming coming back to, it and how have you built on those ideas?
1: Compassion and scale. I, I guess like it doesn't, there's no sense of it being like building, like a, I, I, got, you know, started at one end of a spectrum and ended up at another. I I can definitely say that on the compassion side, there's been a, a process of recognizing my own innate ability to be compassionate. And, and also the, all of the things that come with it, like the, the patience um, and the care and and empathy and and all of that sort of thing i think most of that has come within the context of specific relationships with specific people at specific times so there, there's some sort of meme like proverb that's kind of like be the, you know be the change you want to see in the world and and i think sometimes that's misunderstood but the way that that has manifested itself in my life is that some of the things that I think have been the most valuable for changing the way that I see the world and the things that I choose to do have been becoming the person who is able to be caring and understanding and compassionate and, and healing even with like my close friends and my relationships and stuff. I I think relationships have of all forms have actually been like the best kind of training ground for me for all sorts of kind of personal development, and personal growth. And then in terms of scale, I'm not actually sure I would say the word scale. I, I would choose the word scale as a representative of, of what I mean, but maybe I mean something like impact or, or institutionalization or something like that. I guess I've always had the sense that as people in the modern world, we exist in this incredibly complex environment, which is which is the result of the interplay of a lot of different systems. And if we lived even a few hundred years ago, most of those systems wouldn't exist. And so I think that I I actually have a bit of a a theory that is, it's a folk theory and it's kind of only partially real, um, which is uh, if you think of yourself as a system, your, say, close community as a system and all of the bigger kind of groups that you interact with as uh, systems made up of different, different kind of microsystems or smaller systems, then I would think of you could call it like suffering, as one system in some way being constrained by another system from meeting its desires or meeting its needs. And so I see that a lot currently in quote unquote tech. Um, and I also see that a lot in, in government and in kind of our interactions with bureaucracy. So I mean I have some interaction with with being able to influence some of those systems but right you know right now I'm not pulling any big strings in any of the big kind of uh systems but I you know I do know some people who are and I guess there's a mindset shift that or a or a paradigm shift um that has happened and is happening and that I really enjoy seeing in people who are either thinking about or working with these kinds of systems uh, that recognizes that that you can 't perfectly specify everything and that there 's kind of like an engineer 's fantasy that if you if you know all the variables and you can think them all through beforehand you can make a system that runs perfectly and there 's an increasing understanding that that isn't it 's a fantasy it doesn't it doesn 't exist so I guess my dog in that fight is trying to as much as I can influence the levers in in the various systems i 'm a part of to make that Understanding more of a reality, and to kind of get rid of this fantasy idea that we're the systems we exist in are perfect machines, and they can be perfectly specified.
0: And when you say the systems you're a part of, uh, can you say, I guess, more about if there's anything that you could wave a wand and and you you know, and people would then uh, have this belief that you, that you currently have, or this understanding that you currently have. What would that be? What are you trying to teach or share?
1: Well, so I have one very specific one, but then I think there's a a broader application of it. So my one specific one is that the engineers who uh, work on recommendation algorithms um, of any kind, but specifically recommendation algorithms and moderation algorithms, but specifically say like the engineers that create any of the, um, like the news feeds at at Facebook or the YouTube algorithm or anything like that. But they were intimately familiar with, I guess, Goodhart's law or anything around that. And and if you aren't familiar with Goodhart's law, it's to summarize, it's uh, any metric that's, that becomes a measure ceases to become a good, ceases to be a good metric. And basically what that means is, and actually I think this gets to the heart of my beefs with capitalism, which is anytime you abstract um, value and you and you start counting it or measuring it in some way and then you you reward people based on that count you suddenly introduce incentives in the whole like within everyone who's working in that in that incentive system you suddenly introduce reasons for them to start screwing with that metric and this is very core to why we get uh, kind of the problems with extremism um in the youtube algorithm why we get kind of risky financial instruments within uh the capitalist system why we got clickbait in in facebook um why we get kind of like black hat seo um in in google which is uh we we clearly define some sort of numerical goal post which is kind of only a proxy for what we want right in in the example of of facebook or youtube it's it's I'm not sure if it is now, but you know, at some point it used to be, uh, how long does someone stay on the site? And that's not actually a proxy for, I mean, that's not actually what they, they want. They want something like how sustainable will our business be? Can we still get people to watch the ads we need them to watch? Um, but because they have this metric of how long can we get people to stay on the site? You then have other agents that emerge or that, or that kind of start being in this competition whose only job it is to maximize for that one thing. Um, And so I think I have met a lot of engineers who I I do know a lot of people who are working, who are thinking very deeply about this. And I don't think that everyone who works on these kinds of algorithms is like has the naive opinion about it, but definitely it's a very, very tricky problem. And if you're still under the impression that it is possible to create some metrics such that it's not gameable in any way, I think that kind of, that opinion is, is pretty dangerous when we're talking about algorithms that affect the lives of a billion or two billion people.
0: And what solutions are you most excited about? You know, we were talking about money in another thread of why it makes self-interest legible or, you know, it, it takes into account, it doesn't take into account a lot around, you know, social value and, and, and value in general. Any alternatives or, or amendments that you've been really excited about?
1: Yeah, so there are a lot of individual projects I'm excited about. Like, there's none of them that I would be like, yes, this is the answer, they've got the answer, this is done, we can all go home. All of them have essentially taken part of the question and are really deeply thinking about part of that question. I think that there are some interesting ideas around changing the level of abstraction at which certain calculations happen. Um, and so for me, the specific, to make this more concrete, this, the the thing I'm thinking about is what happens when you change the unit of, of um, agency in uh, say a marketplace. We we traditionally think of marketplaces as being uh, populated by individuals or possibly by firms. Um, and firms are pretty made up things to like to put it bluntly. Like they're at the end of the day they're something that they're a legal fiction and and they are made up by, of people. But their fictional status definitely influences what they do. But um, I'm interested in different, um, I guess, groupings of people that might be considered different uh, agents. And in order to make a real kind of group that that makes sense like that, you have to have a sense that the people involved are actually intimately interconnected. And they're not just kind of, they're not a crowd, right? Um, I think the difference between a community and a crowd is the way that the people in it are interconnected. And so I'm really interested about markets or other forms of kind of, economic interaction that uh, take different units of agency as the standard. Um, So a lot of community building projects I'm really interested in, a lot of economic solidarity projects um, I'm interested in, and then there's the other side which is what is the actual I guess game they're they're, they're playing in and how what are the rules and how do those rules get changed. Um, So there's a lot of different projects that are working in this area. I'm really interested in the uh, radical exchange community and they're kind of taking uh, markets and voting as, as their kind of primitives actually. And just as an aside, I think that making big systems where a lot of humans could coordinate is really hard. And one of the reasons for that is that the more sources of input you add, particularly if they're getting processed by one sort of Processor, like an algorithm or a congress or something like that, the less information you can reasonably take in from each from each source. And so, the two particular things that we've kind of landed on as really simple signals of preference for a large group of people, the two of them that we have are voting and uh, price. Or, or purchases buying and selling. And these are really good innovations, right? Like they've definitely made huge impacts in the way that our society is organized, but they are, there's, first of all, there's only really two of them. And I think a third one that's emerging is potentially prediction markets, predictions in general. And, and that's kind of thanks to the ability to create prediction markets. But essentially one of the uh, limitations we have when creating really big systems is, how much information can we get from each agent and in what format can that information be so I think going back to the I guess levers you have for shifting or, or for changing these these um, systems and, and changing the, the kind of good um, good Harding problem, you can either think about new different signals to create, and I think there are some Uh, people working on interesting financial instruments that are possibly in that category for example like resource-backed financial instruments there are the radical uh, exchange people who are working on different ways of using markets but then you've also got another way of looking at this which is why does this information all need to come to one central place at all and and so for this i think of different kind of structures of, of decision-making. And, and one of them that I like quite a lot is one that I've seen coming from Asana um, and people, some of the, the leaders of Asana who also run a community house in the mission, and they have a principle that's kind of, I'm going to butcher what they call it, but it's something like distributed dictatorship. So the idea being you minimize the amount of information that actually needs to go to some central authority. You decide that each person or each group or whatever has kind of unilateral control over some area. Um, And then you have mechanisms for changing that. But, um, and that's kind of like the, the, the idea of federal um, federalism in, in government that, that states should have quite a lot of power. You don't need all the decisions to be made in a, in a, at a national level, but, but finding other ways of doing that so that a group of different groups, essentially can still work together, that's another avenue for um, making these kinds of changes. And then, and then there are this, the last kind of category of groups working on interesting changes, I think, are the ones working on the cultural level um, and they're often working at a much smaller scale but they're essentially trying to look at the really fundamental parts of human interaction and question the assumptions that a lot of our big systems are built on and see if they can build systems that are built on different assumptions. Um, and these are kind of the most experimental, but you know, they're some of the ones I'm most excited about.
0: What are some of those assumptions? The experiments?
1: So, so one of the big questions is hierarchy and hierarchy and coercion. And and the kind of implicit question is, do we need coercion? How much coercion do we need? What hap- like, Is it possible to build... A large-scale society without coercion, and I don't think that's a solved problem at all. It's it's a pro- like it's kind of like the holy grail of like I guess social system design. You know, if you could create, if you could reasonably create a social system that a million people couldn't could be involved with, that met all of their basic needs and involved no coercion, then great. Like, okay, we've got the million-person version. See if we can find the billion-person version and the seven or eight billion-person version. Done. We can go home. But don't have that yet, um, but there are, I guess, projects that are trying to work on on the very personal level to see if it's possible to undo the assumptions that underpin coercive social systems. And so some of the pro- projects that I'm interested in work on, like, for example, restorative justice, which is trying to move away from a punishment model of of essentially like wrongdoing or, or crime or, or anything we consider kind of bad behavior. And that's not straightforward at all. You know, there are many times in which trying to uh, restore the relationship between someone who's done something wrong or someone who's harmed other people and the community they're part of is just, it's difficult, it takes a long time. Sometimes it breaks down, you know, it doesn't always work, but I think that working in that area is really important. The other one I would say is actually, no, I think, I think mostly it's coercion and, and also um, the related, I guess, emotional or social dysfunction that we end up with. So uh, I really love, we don't really have an equivalent word for it in English, but the, the Buddhist and and Hindu uh, concept of karma is really kind of valuable here. If you think of it as, dysfunctional patterns that we carry on in our lives that have uh, been put in place from experiences that we had early on that we weren't able to kind of quote-unquote digest. And so it kind of goes a bit hand-in-hand hand with coercion, but it can also be uh, related to other ideas. But it's essentially how can we create cultures and microcultures and families and communities that, that don't hurt people as much. Um, where people don't end up with these these karmic patterns or these kind of dysfunctional emotional and uh, mental and behavioural patterns, but where they end up growing up as kind of an integrated person who is exists in a in a culture that is either healing or at the very least not destructive. So yeah, I guess those two aspects that coercion and and traumatic patterns or something um are the two main building blocks or primitives that i have seen projects working on that i'm most interested in
0: yeah and you know in, in response to to my two question of you know, if your life goal was, was to improve human coordination how would you go about it you, you responded three, three ways one is making it easier to model and understand systemic incentive structures two so mm-hmm. you're talking about heal initial people from traumatic social system interactions so they can be more agency and loving and then three develop and spread meta practice for engaging with grand narratives, ideologies, and religions. But bef- zooming out before getting, getting, you know, continuing to get deeper on those three, why, why, why are those the, the the three that you're focusing on? Where do you think, why do you think that's where you can have the most leverage and zooming out even down there? Like, what are we working towards? And like what is the, like some people would say, adjust an equitable society. Like, what would you say? Like what is the, the goal here?
1: Okay. So I guess if I hear the question correctly, the first is, what, why are these strategies useful or, or relevant? Sure. And then the second is relevant to what?
0: Yes. Um, answer, I
1: guess I'll answer the relevant to what question first. It's, it's much easier to say what we're doing wrong that we shouldn't be doing rather than what we should be doing right. Like, I guess to summarize it, it's like happy social systems are all alike. Unhappy social systems are unhappy in all their different ways. And the thing that I guess... If I could summarise it in one, I guess, idea, it's we currently have social systems that cause harm to either the agents within them or the agents that are affected by them. And to be more specific about it, our, our social systems on a really large scale have a terrible relationship with the non-human environment. Um, so literally anything that isn't a human is getting a really bad deal out of all of our human activities, all kind of life on the planet. So, so I guess like our relationship with the, with nature is is pretty bad. Um, the second thing is we tend to, in the process of doing what we're doing and competing in the games we're competing in, we throw up all of these risks, these existential risks, which directly threaten the survival of the whole species and of civilization and of the rest of the life on the planet. So uh, these, there are tons of existential risks and I won't get into them now. Uh, and there are people who individually de- dedicate their lives to kind of fighting each one, but there's a sense in which the way that our social systems are arranged actually facilitates the creation of more and more new ones. So like we, like even if we managed to, no longer have risks from from nuclear weapons or bioweapons or uh, artificial intelligence. There are going to be more, you know, we are always creating new existential risks just in the way that we organize ourselves. And then the, this, the last two, I guess, aspects of society that I think are, are these kind of like worthwhile problems to address are one, the really kind of sticky and messy problem of human hierarchies like we create these very, very unequal societies, which not only have vast differences in material outcomes, like people, some people have more, some people have less, but the very being in a society where you have less than someone else is in and of itself a very stressful situation. Like there's a ton of studies that I can't remember any of the specifics about, about uh, monkeys in, in hierarchies that when they're, the lowest on the totem pole. They just experience a lot of stress. They experience a lot of anxiety. Their health is worse. Um, and a lot of that has to do with their position in this, this hierarchy. So we cause a lot of suffering just by the way that we tend to organize our societies. Um, and then the last one is a little bit more vague, but it's it's basically just that I think that particularly because we have this fiction that we can create systems that are perfectly specified, we tend to create what I call paperclip maximizers, which is a system that decides it has a goal, optimizes for only that goal, and basically ignores or destroys everything else. And this is kind of the reason that we end up throwing out these essential risks and depleting resources and stuff. But as a side effect, the winning systems also tend to destroy any other systems we have. And I, we've seen this, I think, a lot with the relationship between our current economic models and literally any other form of human organization that currently exists you look at the way that like, nowadays families are fundamentally non-economic units and, and and communities are non-economic units and they very much are fighting against being destroyed by very powerful market forces. Like the number of communities uh, and friendships and, and deep kind of like group relationships that I've seen destroyed because someone needed to take a job far away or because people had different working hours or something like that, relationships that get destroyed by working hours or, or these sorts of things. There are big impacts on a lot of these other kind of ways of organizing that we use to make ourselves happy. And um, it's a writer called Lou Keep who has a really great, I guess, distillation of this problem, which is uh, and I'm specifically talking about, I guess, economics and, and specifically capitalism here but it's that we aren't naturally economic creatures. we're naturally social creatures, and we use uh, economies insofar as it helps us meet our social needs. And we're currently in a situation where our social needs are subordinate to our economic needs and it makes us deeply unhappy and kind of like existentially nihilistic and depressed and frustrated and angry and we don't really know why. So I guess that's the last piece of this like what needs to be changed that I think is really important. So I guess, yeah, if you you think about the, the four, there's social relationships being subordinate to economic ones, inherent inequality, resource kind of abuse and then continual creation of existential risks. And I think that all four of these are relevant to our current social institutions and our current social games, all of them, except for, I think maybe inequality. I'm unsure about that one. I think you would not see, there and are, there are other social institutions that have existed in society in which you wouldn't see these, but right now they're kind of making a huge impact. And I see them as fundamentally coming from similar roots which is this kind of paperclip maximizer idea. So yeah, thinking about the ways of addressing these kind of like four issues, uh, of the three you mentioned, the one being making it easy to model systems, the second being making it easier for people to heal from traumatic interactions with systems, and then the third being developing a meta practice for engaging with grand narratives. I'll deal with the, the last one first. And the last one is, I actually think the most difficult, and I don't, I do not have the answer to this. If I had the answer to this, I would be probably starting a religion around it, or something of that effect. But essentially, we can tell a story about the relationship of of humanity or um, to the ways we've organized ourselves socially as having gone through this progression of increasing, increasingly complicated structures, and also different, increasingly complicated. Ways of relating to um, social structures. So there used to be, and it's hard for us to imagine because we grew up after World War II, we grew up after Nietzsche said God is dead. Like I, you know, learned postmodernism in high school, but there was a time where people truly believed that order and rationality and reason were all that was necessary to create a fulfilling life. And that if we created a society that was based on the principles of order and reason and rationality, that everything would be perfect and all suffering would go away and we could create the perfect society. And there are so many remnants of that in our society today. And a lot of them are still causing a lot of these issues. Um, A lot of the, the paperclip maximizing tendencies of our social structures come from having been built based on this belief. And... I think a lot of people, even if they don't necessarily, if they if they don't necessarily articulate it, they be, they they know that this isn't true. Now they know that there's something more to social systems than just having like perfect reason. They have the sense that, and, and this is kind of the thing that that Foucault said that, hey, actually nothing's objective. It's all coming from a perspective, or, or like all kind of knowledge is manufactured in order to uh, maintain a particular structure of power. And so we kind of know this bit. We know that the way that we think about truth and the way that we think about what's good is all contingent on who's in power and how they want to keep it that way. But we don't really have a good way of kind of interacting with these structures in the meantime. And there's, I guess, like this movement or this movement is a strong term, I guess, loosely affiliated collection of people, which has a lot of names as kind of meta rationality, the kind of fluid mode, related to the integral um, people who are basically engaging with this problem of, okay, so we know that systems are kind of made up like social systems and, and the, the beliefs that we, we base them on are kind of made up given that, what do we do given that? How do we engage with them? And the most promising things I see are these kind of new ways of engaging with systems that recognize that they're games and and making kind of choices about how are you going to play the game what games are you going to play knowing that some games might be easier for you than others so that's kind of interesting but i think that the alternative to this is and we see this a little bit with kind of rising tendencies towards authoritarianism is to double down on the idea that there is a perfect truth and it's it's the same truth for everybody and that you should base your system off this perfect truth and i think that that is, I guess it's, it's kind of like dangerous, but it's also just going to delay us um, having these much more kind of resilient and adaptive social systems because these authoritarian mindsets are very much all or nothing. So I guess that's one, that one strategy. The second people, the second one is the healing, uh, healing people. And I think that this is particularly related to Imagining new structures, embodying new structures, and then also trying to create structures that don't have coercion embedded in them. I think that we take for granted now how much coercion we have in our lives. Like we coerce kids like nobody's business. It's ridiculous. And and we're used to quite a lot of coercion and manipulation that we often don't even realize. And we're also often in our attempts to control the world, we're manifesting the thing that we got hurt by. And I think that you see this a lot in uh, certain types of like what you would call now as cults, but like essentially just kind of like utopian fantasies or utopian projects, which is you will end up reenacting your particular traumas or the group's particular traumas so I think that that's kind of like necessary work for building new things is finding ways of healing those wounds in the people who are building them also one would hope that a a more healthy social environment would consist of more healthy people um, who were able to express themselves more and weren't driven as much by fear. And then the the last one, which I guess is the first thing I mentioned in in the tweet was making it easier to model and understand systemic incentive structures. And I think there's actually some really good work being done in this by the complexity science community. But I think that there's still a gap between what, you know, the the most engaged academics know and what normal people like me who just, you know, tweet a lot and stuff can use in order to really reason um, about systems. Because one of the most, uh, so an important distinction to make, first of all, is the difference between complicated systems and complex systems. And this actually goes really to the heart of kind of the beefs of postmodernism, why postmodernism was having such a problem with the the social systems that came before. Um, And it's this idea that in a complicated system, um, there might be a lot of moving parts. There might be a lot of different aspects of it, but at the end of the day, each piece has a certain job and it is possible to fully predict or specify how this whole system will work. An example of this would be an airplane, right? It may have, I don't know, probably a million pieces or something, but, they all get put together in the same way every time. They're all predictably organized. Uh, an example of a complex system would be uh, an ecosystem or a nation or an economy. And the difference here is that the, the system is made up of agents. And an agent is a thing, which could be a person, it could be an animal, it could be a company that has kind of desires and acts upon those desires, um, wants to do stuff. And so the problem with systems made up of agents is that they're adaptive. Agents will change their behavior in response to the environment. And because of that, it's quite hard to model what agents will do. And, and a lot of particularly economic reasoning, and this is the trap that I got into when I was uh, first uh, doing my economics master's, was thinking that you could perfectly understand how people or companies were going to behave in an economy. And you can't because the information about how the economy is doing is in and of itself changing the behavior of the um, people in the economy. So these are like often complex systems, which is honestly, which they're the majority of the systems that we interact with. Um, Anything that has people in it is a complex system. They're really non-intuitive to reason about. So I think we often end up oversimplifying them and then making them into these toy problems, these kind of perfectly specified engineering problems they just don't reflect how those systems actually work. So I think that in order for us to kind of create good policy or design new systems, or even just think about how to change the ones that we already have and think about the flow on effects from different changes, we need to be able to make models. And I think that the two, the most interesting aspects of these or avenues that I've seen people doing the working with uh, this in is one, pretty simple models that kind of model simple agent behavior. So Kevin Simler and Nikki Case have both been doing really interesting things with play, like explainable, uh, explorable explorations, Um, basically explanations that you can play and you can see how they they change. Um, So that's one avenue. And the other is honestly, again, I go back to games. Like I would be really excited, for example, about, an architecture game, kind of like the Sims, like an urban planning or architecture game, like the Sims that modeled the behavior of agents within it. Um, there is actually a game that is currently being built like this. can't remember the name, but the, this kind of thing where you can really get a sense of what happens and you can speed things up and you can start to live in the model, I think is very useful for developing like intuition about systems the same way that a programmer has intuition about software. Um, so anyways, those are, those are three of the kind of main ideas about how to, how to work towards this kind of, these kinds of healthy systems.
0: You know, people have taken the, the analogy of a game further in, in describing much of modern world as, as games and we should gamify, you know, every, everything. And, and, and do you worry that that has some of the negative incentives that you were worried about with the markets in, in the world that about, you know, what you measure no longer becomes important? or it becomes the main thing or.
1: Yeah. So I think like the word gamification, I just shivered a little bit when you said that, Uh, (laughs) shuddered a little bit then when you said that, because gamification is what a lot of people mean when they say gamification is they make competition visible. So an example of this would be creating a leaderboard. So, you know, if you're going to win something and these are actually pretty simplified versions of games and and also at this point I want to make the distinction which probably many people have made before but just to to kind of have this model here which is the difference between finite and infinite games. And so a lot of gamification is thinking about things in terms of these finite games, the games that are winnable, they're also bounded so you can't kind of like make up new rules or change the rules or step outside of the rules in order to keep playing or something. And actually I have on my blog a, a distinction or a, or a analogy which is talking about two different forms of dance as finite and infinite games and and ballet is the finite game there are a set of rules that it's perfectly specified it's possible to create a perfect kind of ballet dancer the alternative one is uh, an infinite game and in an infinite game you play just to keep on playing um, and this is kind of the when i say game our, our social world is always made up of both finite and infinite games but at the end of the day what we i guess would would hope to be working towards is to have the really big deep games like democracy and capitalism and all of these shift more towards the infinite game paradigm we play in order to keep on playing um and right now they're all like capitalism you play in order to win a lot of the time uh democracy you play in order to win so we end up with these dysfunctional traps yeah like i guess this is why I think at least when uh, when people are discussing how to improve kind of like social systems or, or thinking about social systems as games, that the the nuance matters and the assumptions matter. And I've seen a lot of people where I, talking to them on the surface, you'd think we were talking about the same thing, but then when you get really deeper, you understand that they have this mentality of of control or of, perfectly specifying the games and winners and losers and stuff like that so i mean yeah like i I do think that this is it's not just a risk it's a thing that's actively happening all the time that we're creating games that are um zero sum um with meaning that there are winners and losers um and that there's kind of a fixed pie that everyone's competing for parts of and yeah like i think that it is non-trivial to work out how to shift to that second mindset.
0: Um, Let me ask you a question in, a diff- in a, another question, in a different way, which is there seems to be a central conundrum, which is what you measure matter. Like you, you yeah. pay attention to what you measure, but what yeah. really matters you can't measure.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And so do you try to quantify the, uh, you know, the, the loyalty you have to your family or the, you know, love you have with the romantic Oh party.
1: God, no. Yeah. Um, I see what you mean. Like, yeah. like, is the solution more quantification or is it something else? Is that what you're asking?
0: Yeah. And, and, and in a world of increasing, con- you know, the internet and markets, what they do is they make everything legible and then yeah. we pay attention to what's legible. Do we try yeah. to make legible with, in order to prioritize it? Or do we, that seems more likely than us having like a total change of values, which is we're going to stop caring about what we can measure or yeah. care about it. So
1: I think that our relationship to metrics and the relationship of the system to its own metrics is pretty important, and that can kind of make all of the difference. Like if you recognize, and and I think that there are some systems that do rec- that do kind of recognize this. I think that the way that the US was set up, for example, implicitly recognizes that you know that legislators will act in their own best interests, and and that people in power will act in their own their own best interests, and so. Uh, There are lots of, the the kind of idea of checks and balances is um, a little bit uh, almost like overdone nowadays, but it is something that at the time was like pretty, definitely had a lot of foresight in it in terms of limiting the power of any one, any one kind of game, if that makes sense. I think that we do have these systems that are like hugely driven by metrics. And I think that for the, there are some of these systems where they're not yet the most important thing. I, don't th- I think in, in the case of money, often money has become better than all else. But for example, many recommendation algorithms, the end kind of value that some piece of content has is not the most important thing, right? Even the, the relationship of that thing to, to profit, right? There are a lot of intervening human bits. So first of all, I think that we need to recognize that, that those who set the metrics have enormous power if you define the story around what these metrics mean and also what they should be, you have some of the most power in any society. Um, And so I think that both who we let do that, how we choose who does that and what relationship they have to everyone else and they have to the metrics is like worth working on and interrogating. Like, I don't think, you know, in my lifetime, we are not going to get to, some perfect system that doesn't have runaway metrics but we might get to something where we can look back on now and see this as almost like a wild west where we made a bunch of really dumb decisions because we we were kind of naive about what the metrics meant um so i think like at the end of the day there's always interpretation like interpretation is always a key part of metrics and even just in and 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 someone who's doing really good work on this is joe edelman who is helping designers of kind of more tech systems understand um, the impact of certain choices that they make. I think even him starting with the assumption that metrics are fraught and metrics are kind of uh, fallible and they don't reflect reality means that people can kind of put in safety measures slash treat them with more respect and caution. So at the very least, that's something like, and, and definitely the, the time well spent movement that he's kind of affiliated with is definitely a push in that direction. But I always, th- I think that there is always going to be a balance of essentially incremental improvement team and then like utopian team um, or like revolution team or something. Um,
0: which, which team are you on?
1: Oh man. Uh, I, I think I'm a bit more suited for utopian team or revolution team. Just because I get, I, I personally, um, the care and feeding of, of my personal kind of personality it does not do well in, in a lot of the current systems. Like I could never work in government, for example. I think I would just go insane. Um, and I, I appreciate and respect the people who who do kind of fight from within the system. I think that's definitely necessary. I I guess the the appeal to me, and this is definitely more of a long shot than, than um, incremental change, is seeing the kinds of – so like you can think of it as there being like latent tendencies for change in society and then any new idea or new kind of like – I hate to use the word utopia because it's actually really not what we're going for, but any sort of like revolutionary system – kind of riding the wave of some certain like latent need as someone who is working on any of those systems you have almost no control over what that wave looks like when it happens how it happens or what it's related to but that is one of the thing one of the most powerful ways in which society has changed has been there's been an underlying kind of a latent need for something and then someone some group was in the right place at the right time and then there system got massive adoption um and, and again i go back to the united states the united states was like this this is how a lot of the initial uh settlers how their ideas came to influence us several hundred years later
0: Re- regarding the you know revolution versus incremental i i sympathize with the revolutionary approach uh, a bigger go home and this is also
1: a very silicon valley thing and <laughs> silicon valley has a history of of like underplaying the costs of disruption i guess and so like that's that's also another thing that i'm conscious of is if you're going to break everything there's almost no chance that you're going to put in something that's entirely better in its place like a lot of things will just end up broken and so i guess i have less of a desire to kind of do the like aggressive scaling or anything like that but at the same time like the only way that uh a lot of these big shifts will happen is if some old structures cease to exist. So, yeah, it's this is not an easy kind of trade-off.
0: Yeah, but, and just to close the loop in the quantification, I mean, the time we'll spend, to my understanding, is trying to have better metrics effectively.
1: Um, yes and no. I I couldn't say I couldn't speak for Joe, for example, but uh, Joe has a very interesting, a very like interesting essay called "Is There Anything Worth Optimizing?" I think is the name. Uh, which basically argues against uh, the use of naive metrics at all and and argues for essentially like feedback, which is more qualitative um, and can't be aggregated in the same way that metrics can. The advantage of metrics is you can add them up. You can do arithmetic on metrics, which you you can't do on feedback and on qualitative experience. But any sort of complex system is going to be much more qualitative than... um, Quantitative and you, yeah, like, so you can't really do arithmetic on it.
0: Right. And, and, and you kind of go back to where we're talking about money is, do you create a better money um, that, that better captures social value? And, or do you sort of, you know, accept the limits of these metrics? The hard part there is that our abilities to collect data, to process data, to make sense of data and our belief in, in those abilities get better and better. And so, And it sounds dystopian, but we seem to be quantifying everything.
1: <laughs> yes, we definitely are quantifying everything. So, if I understand what you're saying, is the question: Do we try and improve the metrics we have, or
0: or do we resist the the, metric- the, the metricization? I guess my my question to you is: How confident are you that the the tyranny of metrics is accurate? That in you know ten years from now, I don't know, or fifty years, like we won't be able to quantify the unquantifiable. Like how say how how sacred is it?
1: Oh, it can- so I guess maybe a way of thinking about this is. Okay, so, so making an assumption, okay, let me, let me kind of explain this from a, uh, a, a theory perspective. Um, so a metric fundamentally is an abstraction which takes some things which were not equivalent and makes them equivalent. So an example, if I, if I don't use the example of money because it's very fraught, but if I use the example of time spent on, the, on YouTube, if I think of my own experience on YouTube, I sometimes I am spending time on it because I'm watching something with my partner that we had planned to watch that was really meaningful to us. And we really enjoy it. Um, And if you ask me later, like how do I feel about this? I could tell you a lot about how that experience impacted my life and why it was meaningful and, and and what role it played and and, uh, the relationship that time I spent just then had all these other parts of my life and then you could also imagine that I have a really bad day I'm feeling really down on myself and then I end up watching a ton of influencers who are all like sparkle ponies that have amazing lives and make me feel really bad and I'm just kind of like doing this like resentment envy spiral thing for like an hour longer than I wanted to and it's kind of full of resentment now the trick of metrics is that if I spent an hour in both those cases, those two hours are equivalent. And we actually, we don't, you know, this goes really deep. Hours are, are also a metric, right? They're, they're a way in which we decide that two bits of experience are equal. And if I use the example of hours, say you and I um, both spend, like we spend our hours, like like an hour separately. Uh, you go off and, and maybe like have dinner with a good friend and you have a really great conversation. And I Spend an hour, I don't know. I'm sick and I spend an hour throwing up on the toilet. Now, that hour is like, there is no way to objectively measure that hour in terms of its value to, like, its value that doesn't accept that you and I had different experiences of that hour. And any sort of metric has this kind of fundamental problem. So, like, money, and I see this all the time in Silicon Valley, money literally is valued differently in, like, you know, well-funded companies in, in the Bay versus by my friends who are, who are bootstrapping their own kind of like small projects, uh, somewhere else in the U S or in, in other parts of the world. Like there's no way in which you can say that money means the same thing to both of them, but it has the same, it's counted the same. You know, we, we can, we decided that each unit is equivalent and that it's equivalent in all circumstances. And so we can use more sensors, right? We can, For example, we could measure CO2 and we could then track how much CO2 is emitted and then there's suddenly a metric that is related to that. We could track like noise pollution or something like that. But the impact of that and the meaning of that is always going to be contingent on how people experience it and how agents, not just people, how agents experience it. And so in that way, there's no way of making... Truly, quote unquote, objective metrics in the sense that they actually reflect what reality is because reality isn't objective. Like, reality isn't experienced one way, it's experienced from different perspectives. And essentially, metrics are shared fictions that we have uh, where we've decided to pretend like they mean the same thing. I mean, there's one possible avenue where we get better at translating. And so, an example of this would be means based uh, pricing. So you see this at a lot of festivals. Um, I think that there are maybe some government services that do this, or I think uh, there are some government services in some countries where they have fines that are means based. Um, And this is, for example, recognizing that money means something different to different people. They're pretty blunt and like not very subtle, but it's like a start. Right. And you could imagine trying to create a few of these, but they're always going to be playing catch up to reality and, the more ifs and buts and conditions you put on them the less like a metric they are the less useful they are in fact for their core function which is being able to agree on some central or unified definition of value so yeah i guess if if the that's my i guess my attempt to explain um the tyranny of metrics and and why it can't be solved by just having more data basically because at the end of the day, you have to reconcile that data and there's always going to be a trade-off between how much information, how much experience you can incorporate into a metric and how universal that metric is.
0: Is, is this a similar argument to why, to the argument that AI will never be able to, you know, fully encompass all human activity and creativity because, you know, humans and in, in reality are complex systems, not complicated systems that can be, and, and are thus irreducible. Yeah.
1: I mean, like I, I'm not going to say AI could never do that because I am not familiar enough with uh, how AIs are currently being created or, or might be created in the future to know whether you could create a complex AI. You could imagine, I guess, AIs that would definitely act as if they were complex um, systems. I do think that the problem or that it's unlikely that you would get a uh, an artificial uh, intelligence system that would completely reflect the kinds of diverse experiences that we currently have, I could very much see though some sort of dystopian future where it reflects what exists because it destroys what doesn't fit the model. And I think that like, if I'm to get on my like capitalism is just a different type of AI soapbox, I think that we already see this in current economic systems where there are like countless kind of cultures and experiences and roles and rituals that Aren't legible to kind of the the art of the collective intelligence of capitalism, and thus end up uh, starving for attention and resources and, and kind of dying out. As a as a side note, I said the word legible, and a lot of what I've been referring to here has been implicitly informed by James C. Scott's um, Seeing Like a State. So, if the idea of metrics and legibility and everything is interesting to uh, anyone, that's definitely a good book to check out or check out. Slate Star Codex's review of it, which is kind of an 80-20 way of consuming the content.
0: Right. And, and, and yeah, and, uh, uh, Yuval Harari from Sapiens, as, as his talk on, on, on TED, where basically he says, you know, right now seeing like a state is not as good as seeing like an individual because you no know, central planner can, can mm-hmm. you know, have all that information. But in the future when data processing you know, uh, and collection gets a lot better and everything is legible or lots of things are legible, is it possible that central planning will be able to, to see better in some sense? Um,
1: yeah. So, I mean, this question is, is interesting. There's also a sense in which it's kind of hypothetical. Like I'm not going to actually try and throw the numbers out there for how much more complex uh, central planning is than distributed or emergent planning. But there's a, a very good argument that I, I read uh, about central planning of systems the size of current countries requiring more computational power than basically currently exists and more time such that you couldn't create the right decisions uh, or you couldn't compute the right decisions in enough time to have them be any use. I do also think like, that saying like we can have a, a central plan system that perfectly specifies every you know like the optimal needs for everybody or or whatever very much ignores or or tries to brush under the rug the problem of kind of relative value or contested value so like most of political kind of conflict is is people or groups disagreeing about how much things are worth, and often it's because they value a certain thing and each each group values it in certain ways but they can't share it or something and there are a lot of things that regardless of how many resources we have will be scarce in any in any system where we value being on the top of a hierarchy um some sort of respect or prestige or whatever will be scarce and so i'm kind of skeptical of this idea that well no i i could see a world in which we had a central plan system and everything was perfectly specified and i would also consider that a dystopia because like what is considered valuable and what and who gets what value seems like it would be perfectly or it would it would be largely controlled by the people who are in control and if you imagine how much it's possible to oppress people now with the systems that we have imagine how uh how much it's possible it would be possible to oppress people if we had systems that were kind of omniscient uh, and knew everything and uh distributed everything, and where all of your kind of needs were met by this one system, I could see that just being for many people being dystopian because they were fundamentally like misunderstood or their their needs were just devalued compared to some other group's needs
0: going back to to markets and, and communities you, um it sort of you know we're talking about misunderstood that's uh, you know the rise of markets makes people better off and thus le- less dependent on each. I am mean, simplifying simplifying, but uh, yeah, uh, markets make people wealthier and less dependent on other people. And basically, it's it, it's understood that markets kill communities in some sense, or yeah. communities that as, as we traditionally understood them. It's sort of I would say it ends the tyranny of proximity. I'm sort of being cute when I when I say that. Um, I think there's a lot of great things about proximity, but the, the question I have is this: the solution for uh, is it possible that markets will also provide the solutions too? So you've got, like things like Airbnb for childcare, Airbnb for homeschool or like in the same way, you know, markets put us on the internet, which put us, you know, we don't, we don't rely on our neighbor. We're not, we don't show the same interest as our neighbor. Now I meet people like you on Twitter and have great conversations with them. Is it possible that those markets will also bring us together in person and, and people will make new and different kinds of communities that are based on interests and values rather than, proximity and and dependency i'm simplifying but sure, i'm making a straw man but so, so, about, yeah.
1: yeah so I, I think the question i hear you asking is uh can markets facilitate making better communities than we would have had if we didn't have them the market
0: sure I, i'm 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 asking if they can solve some of those community problems that they help create
1: yeah so it does very much depend on what markets and for what I would actually specifically call Twitter out as not a market. Uh, it's a game, but it's not, uh, like, uh, it isn't a market and I think that's actually one of its its benefits. Um, so I actually, I, I think that markets feel dehumanising to the extent that they replace experiences or goods or resources that we would normally get from very strong social bonds. And you can think about this in a pretty like the, the, the extreme version, which is replacing like sexual relations with a, a spouse or a, or a long-term partner with like um, sex work. Um, and nothing wrong with sex work, you know, there, there are a lot of people doing really good sex work, but it, there is a very big difference between essentially like knowing somebody loves you and that this experience that you're having with them is unique to the relationship that you have that can't be replaced by having a quantitatively or, or even qualitatively similar experience with a lot of different people or with with someone that's like been matched kind of in, in, like at different times. And and another, I guess, intuitive or, or another intuition pump I'll give for this is thinking about Airbnb for childcare and, and just thinking like if you think all the way through the implications of this. If you imagine that childcare worked in a similar way to Airbnb, with Airbnbs, the advantage is you uh, get an Airbnb when you need one. You can pay a price; like it's it's possible to purchase. Uh, but the downside is, if you don't have any money, you don't get to stay in an Airbnb. Uh, you don't get any guarantee that you'll have the same one for a certain amount of time. You're always competing with other people for the same resource. And as a result, you will experience lots of different Airbnbs, and they'll all be different. You won't have any sense of familiarity. Now, an Airbnb is is a it's an object. It's it's a place, right? It's it's not a person. But humans have very fundamental needs to make attachment bonds with other humans. Like a lot of our kind of deepest kind of wounds that we end up with come from malfunctions in our attachment bonds with our earliest caregivers, and I think that doesn't necessarily go away. Like it's not like we lose the ability to be traumatized by attachment issues when we get older. I know like I'm very lucky to have uh, abundant relationships in my life, but I know a lot of people, particularly women who are my age who are burnt out on like Tinder and that kind of culture, because they're essentially in this transactional race to find someone who will step out of the market with them. Um, And it's exhausting and dehumanizing and, like, stressful in a way that, for example, going to parties and meeting people is is not. And so I think that one way that markets can work as a source of nourishment to communities and strong social bonds is where there are limited markets that are matching markets of some kind that then lead to periods of commitment. Um, so an example I'm thinking of is markets for exchange, like uh, university exchange, like going on exchange one time for like six months or whatever, you can do that. And then you go away for six months and you have bonds and, and interesting experiences that you'll have for life. Also, although it's not quite a market, like I'm very grateful, for example, for the ways in which Facebook has let me bootstrap community where I live, um, since I moved, it's not, again, it's not a market. So I think there's an important difference, but at the end of the day, we, we have a deep need to feel like the people that we care about and that care about us are still going to be there um, and that we're going to be, a, and that the, the investment we make in being vulnerable to them and, and developing intimate relationships is going to be worthwhile. And that's just nonsensical if, you, if the rules of the game state that you can't trust that they're going to, that, that uh, they'll be able to or want to be there in the future. And and as we pay more for things, and, and actually I think that work does this a lot, right, as we pay people to do things that we might previously have normally done for each other for free, it becomes harder for people to take the opportunity cost of, of doing something for free. And so, like, it, it ends up being, even if people would be willing to, for example, provide you emotional labour or whatever, or like, listen to you or help you move or something like that, the fact that now you can find someone who'll help you move for like on Antarctica for like 20 bucks makes it, and, and that they, you know, like are going to go to their highly paid job where someone's paying them a lot of money to stay in one place. It's, it's harder for them to be around to care for you in the ways that you, that, that a lot of people really desire to be cared for. And I think that the people that most, that get most kind of broken down or destroyed by the system are the ones that aren't uh, perfect worker bees, basically. So children, um, the elderly, people who are sick, people who cannot trade. Like like you cannot, at the end of the day, expect uh, like a baby to trade with somebody else or uh, a 90-year-old with dementia to trade with someone else. And so what you're doing is you're putting, you're essentially proxying them through whoever the responsible adult is And then then there's this this, um, nasty kind of incentive for the responsible adults to not really want to take that responsibility, to not want to be responsible for someone who isn't market worthy. And I think that then further puts pressure on on the non-market relationships. So, yeah, I guess what I would say is, is there might be some limited circumstances in which markets could be beneficial to communities, but if we were to have a default approach of applying markets and hope that they they work out, I think that we would end up with much worse outcomes than not doing that at all.
0: Right. And in the ways in which they help communities, it's among people of me, me like maybe that they're okay. Replacement for communities around shared interests. Yeah. Great. But uh, right. maybe when maybe you've got,
1: so, so there's been a meme going around on Twitter recently about the idea that the enlightenment was driven by childless men. Um, and I mean, whatever the story is, I'm sure that it's been overblown, but that, but we do have this uh, kind of belief in our culture that is, that is something like the myth of the individual. We have this belief that everyone is an individual and that um, everyone should be able to kind of like take care of themselves or, or whatever. And what that ends up doing is having us basically pretend that people who are dependent just don't exist and that the people who care for them are like just not working hard enough or something in some way rather than recognizing that actually being an individual who can meet their own needs and who doesn't need to rely on anyone else is actually kind of an anomaly, if you think about it, at least historically, if not even now. Like, I I remember having a discussion with a friend just, just recently talking about, we were talking about our intentional community and I just kind of stopped and I was like, wait a second. All of my friends have jobs or make their own money. They are healthy. They're like young They don't have any dependents and they also don't have any like kind of health issues, like, like really big kind of, and I'm like, man, that's like a, a a tiny fraction of society because most people are, are nowhere, like are not in that situation at all. And so when we talk about like people being able to make choices to take advantage of opportunities, we're often defaulting to meaning people like to, to kind of replacing people with the people who have the freedom to do that which often means people who either have no responsibilities to other people or who are able to kind of get rid of them.
0: I, I, I want to talk to you about nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, the there, there's some fundamental principles I, I take from NBC, and I'm curious which ones don't resonate with you, or which ones do. Yeah. One is that we are. I'll say them and then I'll ask you to respond. One is that we are responsible for our own feelings, um, and 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 we can change them, and um, and we shouldn't blame others for them. That's sort of the implication. Yeah. We should take responsibility for it. There, there, a, a couple more. Uh, yep. Two is it's it's less. It's not that there isn't right or wrong. It's that it's less conducive to bring say, hey, you're right, you're wrong, versus sort of explain your experience. And that, it sort of implies, in some sense, truth is relative, or that it's just more produ- constructed to think about it. truth is relative. Other than otherwise, you just get in arguments over who's right, who's wrong, who's who's true, who's, who's false. Uh, this is on a micro level. Mm-hmm. The third principle uh, uh, I, I take, or assumption rather, is that people aren't evil. Uh, they're just trying to meet, their trying to get their needs met. Yeah. The fourth is that language is dynamic. People aren't even things. And so people are just, you know, if people are very dynamic. They can change. They're, ha- they're having experiences. And so we shouldn't say, you are lazy. You are this. And, and just speak to observations. And then the last is because people aren't evil and they're just responding to uh, to their needs, uh, we shouldn't punish or reward. Um, and we should just try to make it in people's incentives to meet their needs, uh, in in more constructive ways. I'll sort of pause there for any, right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, like, thanks for trashing my work and working memory. I'm trying to remember all those questions now. Um, so, okay. The first one that you said was we should take responsibility for our own emotions and our feelings and they are ours. We shouldn't blame others.
0: I'll give you one quick example. I was in yeah. this, but not to bash or not even bash anything, but I was in this diversity training this weekend and one, um, for, for the trip I'm going on. And, and the teacher said, teacher said that someone typically asks her, why can't we just assume that people, it, they're talking microaggressions. Yeah. And people say, why can't we just assume that people mean well? And, and she said, okay, you can assume that, but you can also just assume that you should take full responsibility for, uh, the impact that your actions have on other people. And I was yeah. like, should you take full responsibility oh, for
1: it? Interesting. <laughs> so, okay. So I think that the context in, or, or the frame that you take around this assumption, the assumption that your feelings are your own and thus you should take responsibility for them is really powerful if, in some ways. But the frame and the context really matters. I've seen a lot of ways in which NBC is abused uh, as a, 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 an excuse to do what you want or something. And I think that, like, it is important to remember that you're responsible for your feelings at each stage. If so, if you do something and then someone's upset and then that upsets you, you're also responsible for the fact that what you did, the way that they reacted then made you feel upset. Like, And I also caution, like, I think one of the ways that this runs into problems is actually a cultural mismatch, which is when I find, and I'm going to make a bunch of stereotypes here, which I'm going to acknowledge are partial and kind of a story I'm using right now. But I've often found that there are people who find NVC who tend to be disproportionately men and tend to be disproportionately, I'm going to say like avoidant attachment, uh, attachment styles, um, who then, who who actually get to NVC very quickly and are very good at using it and are interacting with people who struggle to keep calm um and then use the the fact that they are good at staying keeping within the rules of nvc as essentially a way of exerting their their status or something over over other people and and um kind of excusing them out of empathy and i'm definitely not saying that everyone who does nvc does this or every man who does nvc is this but i've I, it's a pattern that i've seen often enough that i know it's it's a trap that can happen and i think that there are two contradictory things that it is useful to hold in mind at the same time. And one of them is that the only thing that you can control or influence is uh, your own experience and that we are very fundamentally social creatures who are very interdependent. And like both of those are true at the same time. And so one of the failure modes I see is people basically ignoring that second thing and like, kind of saying like, well, you know, like I acted this way and you got upset about it and that's your pl- that's your problem. And kind of shutting off from that person's experience. So what I, I would say is like in order to use NVC well, like a useful frame to have is a sense of curiosity about everybody involved. And that means like you can't control the other person, but you can control how interested you are in how they feel. And I, I think like if you are able to hold that frame and, you know, obviously, particularly if you are someone who is used to being very independent and, and kind of uh, looking after yourself, then it can be difficult to do that. But if you're practicing NBC anyways, you know, like it's it's useful to practice being intensely curious about the other person, particularly about when you notice yourself kind of using NVC to score points. I think that the sense in which, and, and also another thing I will say is that the sense in which we are all responsible for our own feelings or experiences gets, like, in some ways, a little less true the closer you are to people. Not, I'm not saying you're responsible for, for say, your partner's experiences, not at all, but, like, as you get closer to someone, you begin to be able to predict how something you do will make them feel, and if you can predict how something will make someone feel and you value them trusting that you will act in their best interests and you still decide to do something that you know will make them upset, and maybe like don't tell them about it first, then like if they get really pissed off at you that you know that's not that's not surprising, and so I think like for example with with my partner i don't like yes my feelings are my own. I own my experience and he owns his experience, but we're also like relating to our experience is a skill that we improve in service of each other. And uh, if he all of a sudden was like, no, nah, sorry, I'm going to stop like trying to improve this. Also, I don't really want to listen to your experience. Then I would be like, okay, well, that's a choice you've made and we're going to have to like deal with that. And maybe you know not be so close or something. So yeah, I guess like owning your experience is, is a bit more complex than the way people might think of it when they first learn about NBC.
0: How about on the sort of, it's less, it's not that there isn't right or wrong or that truth is relative. It's just less constructive in, in, you know, micro relationships to assume knowledge of truth or, or right.
1: So I, that question was so out of the frame that I normally sit in that I had to remember that to myself, that like there are people who think arguments are about what is right and wrong. Um, Because for me, that has been such, like, it's so long since that has been a frame that I found useful that I had, like, it was just kind of a bit weird to remember that. It does depend on the context. I think that, like, for example, if you're in a courtroom and you're a lawyer and you're trying to argue for your client's kind of innocence, then noticing that the that the opposing lawyer is having a bad day and kind of interrogating that, it's not going to be super helpful. But I think... Implicit in the use of MVC is that you care about the quality of your relationships with people around you. And you may also care about the quality of your mental models. And a lot of people do, particularly a lot of like engineering scientific people very much care about how good their, their models are. And maybe the reassurance I would make is that it is always possible to agree after you both feel safe, but until you both feel safe, it's very hard to agree. And too often what I've seen is a pattern where one person wants to ha- like agree, wants to win the argument or something. And the other person sees that as attacking and retreats. And then the first person will kind of even go- like go even further, trying to push kind of bully them into submission or something. And the, the second person is continually retreating. And they're- the first person is wondering, why won't this person listen? The second person is wondering, why won't they get off my case? I feel terrified. And I think that, like, the most useful thing in this situation, if you and it does take some kind of mental space to do it, is to be able to just drop that and go, like, A, can I put some space between me and the need to be right right now? And B, what is it about this fact or this belief or whatever that I'm scared of losing? Because, you know, like, I don't get super angry about, like, if someone was, like, the sky is green and, like, loudly yelled at, that at me, I'd be like, all right, dude, whatever. Like, this is, this is an interesting experience, but if they said, I don't know, like coercion is the only way to interact with people or something, then maybe they could succeed in getting me to like, get all angry at them and kind of feel defensive. And, uh, I think Paul Graham's got an article about this, this idea that anything that you associate with your identity is something that becomes like an attack vector, but the, the basic idea is, is if you have a need to be right, often what that is, is you have a part of your identity that is scared of being wrong. If it's something that you are wrong about, but you don't really care, or it's not part of your identity, then you can be really relaxed about it because you may discover that you're wrong. And then that's great. Like you get to update. That's amazing. But yeah, I guess there's a dynamic where often people think, oh, I need to be right. And what they're actually, what's actually happening is their identity is like shit. Uh, I'm getting attacked. I need to be right in order for my identity to, to, to be coherent. And so often recognizing that that's happening to you can help you diffuse this sort of, I need to be right situation. It's rarely about being right. Like honestly, in political situations, like where there's actual policy and there's actual decisions, like votes and stuff, then maybe, but most of the time it's about identity.
0: And and I'm assuming you're going to agree with the last view, which is, you know, you know, people are just trying to meet needs versus their yeah. inherent evil that, uh, and, you know, and thus we shouldn't punish them for that. And then and also language being dynamic, um, rather than static in our, our current language, um, sometimes puts us in boxes.
1: Yeah. So I'll go in that quickly on the, the people, just a point I want to make about the people aren't evil thing is people may not be evil, but they may still be profoundly destructive to you. Like as in their personal, and I go back to karmic patterns, their personal patterns, karmic patterns, maybe you're just interacting with yours in a very gnarly way. And that doesn't mean that like someone not being, just because someone isn't evil, that doesn't mean you have to to hang around. Like I, I actually use the the analogy of like a bear. A bear isn't evil if it's like attacking you because you're threatening its cubs. That still doesn't mean you have to hang around let the bear attack you, right? And so I think there is a sense in which you don't have to sacrifice personal protection at the altar of nobody's evil. And then just, yeah, I guess the thing I'll say about the about the language thing is it, it is pretty obvious that you know language is evolving, but also it's, it's one we have this wonderful opportunity, particularly when we are connected across like the internet and, and various other kind of hyper connected communities the world is not perfectly explained in language, you know, like words are pretty imprecise, but every time we try and explain something, we have the opportunity to kind of crisp up the possible handles that we use for things like words being a type of handle on experience. And like you might make something or you might discover a language, a use of language that's actually really clear and, and really conveys some idea really well. And then kind of popularize that and then suddenly that that concept exists in in like idea space and it didn't necessarily. Like I remember I I remember that there was a time that I didn't understand the idea of holding space for somebody. Like like I may have done it, but I didn't know like like if you if you said that, I wouldn't have known what you meant. And now it's something that is like very commonly used in my friend circle. Like people will ask me to hold space for them or I'll say, hey, like can I like can you hold some space for me? And everyone knows what that means, and it's just a powerful kind of concept to be able to communicate. I guess basically, what I'm trying to say is like innovation and communication is useful and and fun and valuable.
0: I think going back to the question about yeah, people aren't evil, but they could be causing problems for you. The question is that, like, how do you change behavior, or how should behavior be regulated? And is it to you know are people is it tired and stick motivation versus you know appealing to their better nature and and just like. Aligning incentives in some way—that I, I, sounds like economic or market—but I mean more like connecting. Yeah, with
1: yeah. So when you say uh, how do I change behavior, are you talking about my behavior or the behavior of people I'm interacting with, or the behavior of like people within systems I may have some control over?
0: All the above.
1: Okay. All right. Well, I think they're very different, right? So I'm uh, when I'm looking at my own behavior, I have I have a principle that I think has improved my life immensely. Um, And I think it's taken me a few years to actually get to the point where I'm able to implement it, which is I very strongly avoid internal self violence. And this sounds like, well, obviously, you know, you're not going to hit yourself. But actually, a lot of people who grow up in a normal society, uh, in schools, with kind of normal parents, normal social environments, will end up internalizing a lot of fairly uh, violent behavioral kind of modifications and there's a lot of shame and a lot of there's a lot of energy being expended to kind of hold up a system inside you that regulates your behavior in a way that society approves of and um these take a lot of effort like there's a lot of energy that goes into being quote-unquote like being a bad person and not being good enough and like all of these sorts of memes so like a few years ago i I I kind of did this experiment for about a year where I didn't do my, I didn't make myself do anything that I didn't want to do. There were a few restrictions on this. Like I had to go and do a bare minimum amount of work in order to make money. You know, I needed to eat food and, and stuff like that. But by and large, I didn't make myself do anything. I didn't want to. And over the course of that year, I like discovered, like I basically healed the relationship I had with myself is one way of putting it. And so instead of seeing my myself as this like elephant and rider, and the rider needs to be trained and and kind of uh kind of directed and, and coerced or whatever, I it completely shifted and I started having a lot of empathy for the parts of myself that were trying to get trying to get pretty fundamental needs met, but just in ways that I didn't understand. So nowadays, if I'm doing something and there's part of it where I'm like, okay. Uh, this behavior doesn't make sense or it's not adaptive. You know, it's doing something that I don't want. One of the first things that happens is I'm curious. I'm like, okay, well, what is this part doing? Like it's, there are lots of different parts of me and they've all been running me for a while and they've, got good, they've gotten good at their job. So this part of me must be doing something. Sometimes it's maladaptive, like in the sense of it's just hurting me, but I've kind of worked on a lot of those that nowadays there aren't a lot of those left and, and what is often left is things that have trade-offs so I'll look at a behavior and I'll be like okay well that behavior isn't great for this reason but it's actually kind of adaptive in this situation and then I guess like there's a lot of like little practices or um processes that I might use to discover shifts that in that behavior I might take uh but a lot of them are like they are a sense of, there's a sense of discovery. It's not, you know, I'm rarely now doing a thing where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do X for 30 days or whatever uh, and make myself do it. It may be that I want to experiment with what it's like to do something for 30 days. But if on the third day I was, you know, in an awful state and just didn't want to do the thing, I wouldn't force myself to do it. And so from that become like begets this self-trust that, I know I'm going to meet all of my needs. I know that I might do things that make people feel feel bad sometimes. And that's also okay. You know, it's okay if I do things that don't make people happy. It's okay if I do things that don't make me happy sometimes. And often if I really kind of let myself have that mindset, I will want to do things that are naturally kind of uh, rewarding Um, the one exception I will make to that is, uh, what I call is is this idea of on ramps, which is, I think that there's a lot of situations where you don't feel like doing something, but then like, once you're doing it, you're glad that you did it like in the experience of doing it. And, um, an example of this would be like, if you're starting to work or going out for a run or something like that, where you're like, Oh, I don't want to do this. And then 10 minutes later you're doing it and you're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Why did I think I didn't want to do this? And often... That's because of this. It's like an idea of a warm up, like or or like a, an attentional or motivational warm up. You're in a mode right at that moment that isn't compatible with that thing that you that you should do or you want to do or whatever. So the situa- the solution I have for that is, um, how do I describe it? It's like next, like just the one next step. So instead of saying I'm going to go, I'm going to go for a run. Like all I'm going to do is get dressed into running clothes you know, or maybe like instead of like cleaning my room or something like that, but all I'm going to do is like pick up one thing and then I'll notice how like that feels and then see about doing the next thing. And if at any point I'm like, Oh my God, this is awful. Then I slow down and I do something much smaller. And occasionally it'll be a really no, like it will be like, actually I feel sick or actually I feel really hungry or I need to meet some other need. But often like the, each action builds momentum and then I really want to do the thing with like 10 minutes in. And you can also set up different environments that w- you know will make you want to do that. So like I have particular Spotify playlists that I know I really enjoy uh, listening to uh, while I'm working, for example. Or if I know that I want to go for a run somewhere particularly beautiful, then that will be a really good motivation. So yeah, like that's that's kind of uh, how I make myself do things. So the sec- the second thing that you... Asked was about well i guess about other people and then the the third was about systems so uh if i just think about like other people i have a lot of heuristics for like trying to understand what people are, are doing but essentially it boils down to like can i pass a turing test where the test is can i pretend that i'm that person explaining why i'm doing that thing which is kind of related to ideological Turing tests. But uh, in this case, it's like a motivational Turing test or something. And if I can't, then more curiosity, like why are they doing that thing? And if I can get to the point where I understand, I, if I were them in their situation, I would do the same thing. Then I can start to think about, well, how would, would I decide to do this thing differently? Uh, That's like, particularly good when the person that you're interacting with is someone you can't negotiate with very well or that you find them very frustrating or something like that if it's someone that you know or someone that you get along with well and there's just some issue then generally it's a lot easier than that you can ask them do you want to do this thing what's stopping you from doing it how can I help you meet it if if you have a good rapport with them that's fairly straightforward but and then the third thing is like noticing why you need that thing anyways. And oftentimes it's more to do with you and your like fears or needs or something than it is to do with, with them. Um, particularly if it's something that they find really costly to do or they're really unwilling to do. And like, I found this often with like if you have a romantic relationship and one person wants to pursue the relationship and one person doesn't, you know, when I was younger, I used to ex- expend a lot of energy in like, Oh, this person doesn't want to date me, but I really want to date them. So I'm going to try and make them date me. And, like I recognize that that was a pretty pathological pattern then. And now like, you know, there, there are people I've known, I'm still friends with where I'm like, I want to date them. They didn't want to date me. And I can still hold that and then still um, interact in ways that do feel good to them because there's no longer this like hunger to fill that particular need. It's just, it's a desire that might be present, but it's not overwhelming. And so often as well like when people are are not afraid that you desperately need something it's much easier for them to meet it you know kind of this idea of like if you have like an animal like a cat or something we have a um i have a a cat that i that lives with me in the house i live in when the cat arrived you could not touch her to like at all like she would just run away and over time if you just sat there and you just kind of looked at her and you were welcoming, she would eventually come over you. But if you went and chased her, she would just like run away. And I think that a lot of the time when people are afraid to do something, there's that kind of dynamic there. They don't want to feel smothered. They don't want to feel coerced. But if you let them do something, they're happy to do it.
0: Just one of the things we were talking about early uh, was sort of, compassion at scale and i'm I'm curious to just bring back this concept of scale and how things change at scale and we've been talking about nbc presumably in a micro sense with you know the ideas of responsibility the ideas of uh right and wrong the ideas of people just trying to meet their needs the ideas of you know language is being dynamic uh the ideas of punishment how how do you think that? those things or some of those things change at scale. And how do you think about, you know, this famous line of, uh, you know, with my family, I'm a communist, a uh, friend, socialist, you know, Republican, I'm a state or whatever. Just sort of as as things change, change of scale, you sort of decentralize, decentralize things. What do you think about this concept?
1: So uh, the concept that uh, I guess the way that people behave changes at different scales, is that kind of what you're asking or...
0: Yeah maybe our our expectations or our morals like when we said like you know like in in one to one maybe we shouldn't uh you know engage in the concepts of right and wrong but maybe on a macro scale maybe maybe those views are helpful or or maybe in one to one we should take more uh more responsibility and in macro we should assume that people have less responsibility um or maybe in one to one or a small community you know it doesn't make sense to punish people but maybe at scale you need to have you know like
1: yeah so i think that there's like one, there's a couple of breaks in, you can think of like moral reasoning. And one of the main ones is occurs when everyone who's in whatever this moral context is, uh, which could be, it could be literally any group of people, a moral context, just being a group of people that are deciding to kind of adhere to some kind of moral game. There's a big difference in the jump from where everybody knows each other Uh, and everybody can have some sort of impact on each other and where everybody doesn't. And I'm kind of oversimplifying that distinction, but what you would end up seeing is that in systems where nobody knows each other uh, or has direct relationships with each other, you have to have very different, I guess, kind of call them like moral coordination strategies. And actually, I think that's one of the ways in which markets have really given us a lot um, is that they have given us like a very simple kind of coordination mechanism that works even if you don't know everybody involved even if you kind of know nothing about them so i think if we just think of the the kind of cluster of moral strategies that is needed on the the far side of the kind of do, the, the do we know everybody do we not know everybody scale um spectrum if, if we think about things on, on that side, generally we're thinking about coordination strategies or, or moral kind of behavior as a group that is pretty low bandwidth. Um, and I mentioned before the idea of metrics kind of simplifying information and any sort of coordination or, or moral strategy, because I actually really do think that moral, moral agreements or moral behaviors are largely just strategies for kind of getting along they all have very kind of simple information flows. So we think about like uh, voting or uh, money or prediction markets um, or I guess betting and all of those things uh, are like, they're they're kind of like limited, r- limited behaviors. And we have other behaviors you can do at scale, but, and they generally involve getting, getting attention of some kind. Um, so, There are a lot of um, ways you can organize a society or a group that is, let's just call it higher than the Dunbar number. Um, It's not exactly true because you can know more people than a Dunbar number, but basically, you know, a society full of strangers. And, yeah, I wouldn't even necessarily call them, I mean, we can think of them as moral questions, but morals are basically just a mechanism through which we create a society that is worth living in or a group that is worth living in. So yeah, like when we're thinking about like, is it, is it a good idea to have certain rules or a good idea to, to like, is X right at this context or, or in this situation? It's entirely like, you can think of it very pragmatically. Like, is this thing right for the society or the context that it's in? You can think of a lot of like social taboos or, or cultural taboos as largely um, kind of behavioral norms uh, that are designed for some, you know, or they've emerged because they have some utility in that particular kind of social context. They may not still have that utility, but um, they generally emerge for some reason. So I guess this is kind of a bit of a rambly answer to your initial question, which is something like, how do we think about compassionate at scale? And yeah, I guess in the context of the, the system we're thinking about is maybe the best way to put it. And with an understanding that any sort of rule that emerged, emerged in the context of specific relationships between people. Um, even if those relationships are like many to many, you know, millions to millions or something.
0: Yeah. the I'm curious for your thoughts on the on the Dunbar number and how that constrains or doesn't constrain us. I guess I'm curious in, in another two ways. One is, do you think that, you know, sort of like, what we took to be like a best friend can that sort of be unbundled, or or like 150 people you know well can sort of be unbundled of people you know in certain context, or I, I guess I'm I'm just curious generally how you think the Dunbar number is or isn't. Um, yeah.
1: Yes. Best- so, firstly, I'm gonna kind of explicitly <laughs> hold that idea lightly. Um, like you know, Dunbar number is a bit of a almost like folk tale now, and it's a useful folk tale. But I'm not saying that like specifically 150 people is this magical number of friends you could have or something like that. It's, but there is, you know, some idea of social complexity limits, like limits to the complexity that we can experience. And I would actually say when you talk about like, it seems like you're asking something like how many friends can we have or, or can we uh, disaggregate the the things we get out of the relationships that traditionally would have been in a, in a group of say 100 people, like a tribe. Um, and I actually think that the Dunbar number isn't about how many relationships we have. It's about what size group we can keep track of. And so the thing about 150 is 150 people is it's actually not that you're keeping track of 150 people. It's that you're keeping track of the relationships between 150 people. So like, I don't, I can't do the the math on top of my head, but I assume that'd be like 150 factorial or something, which is an extraordinarily large number. Um, and uh so I think the thing that the the idea of the Dunbar number what that says is not we can't have more than 150 friends um but that we have a sense of being able to track the behavior and moods and feelings of a group that is of a certain size and if a group uh becomes larger than that we can't track it on the basis of the relationships between individuals we have to use something else and We have many ways of of doing this. We've obviously, all of us are part of groups that are bigger than 150, um, even by virtue of being born in a country. uh, You know, a country is a group of people that is bigger than 150 people. So we have other ways of, I guess, tracking the relationships in those groups. And generally it is some form of simplification or abstraction. So if we think about ourselves as uh, citizens, we might think of our relationship to the kind of personification of the government, which in most cases is like the president and some of the Congress people. We may understand the rules that everybody's abiding by and trust that if people are kind of behaving according to those rules, that we can trust them. And we might trust the process by which uh, those rules get made. Um, and so if, same if we look at, like, for example, marketplaces. You know, I may not trust some random person who i get into an uber with or i i um rent an airbnb from but i trust kind of that they're self-interested and that it's in their self-interest to to help me there's a term for it i can't remember what it is right now but it's like mutually aligned self-interest or something like that is kind of the the beauty of markets and capitalism in general that i don't need to actually know anything about you i just need to know that At a very basic level, are doing what you want. And the doing what you want is in your interest, and it's also in my interest if you're selling something to me. So, yeah, I think that we have already come up with a lot of strategies for having groups that are bigger than a a done by number size. And we obviously have more than 150 friends or connections and people that we track. And you would obviously be very familiar with this being someone who talks to a lot of different people. But I think that there is still something qualitatively different about the experience of being situated in Dunbar level and below groups, which is something that I think is much more instinctive or much more emotional. You know, like if something's going wrong and we worry that we can't trust a specific person, we can go and check, you know, we can go and talk to that person and go like, hey, dude, what's going on? Like, let's sort this out. And we may know that there's someone else we can get to help us with that, but in bigger systems where there's more of a a logical or um, kind of specified or, or, or structured way of trusting people, you know it isn't practical, or we can't really go and check if someone's trustworthy, like you know down to the to actually knowing them and, and kind of um, the deep trust that we might have in the kind of sub Dunbar type of group so yeah i think i think um we can definitely have a lot of functions that are we already have a lot of uh, functions in our lives fulfilled by you know super uh dunbar groups i mean almost all of the major parts of our our lives are fulfilled by that in some way at least um in terms of kind of the basic uh needs you think of like having a house. We don't build houses with our friends. We like some professional builds a house and then we kind of live in it. Um and and to every other kind of need. So yeah, like I think that we are used to relying on these kind of super Dunbar structures and that's fine. But there is kind of a different skill to evolving and and becoming part of and growing the, the sub-Dunbar groups. Uh, that I think, because we rely so much on the the bigger ones, we don't necessarily have as much of in our society right now.
0: Yeah, I think a couple things. Uh, one is, you know, people talk about how markets make things transactional, um, and certainly within you know communities of micro that that makes sense as the critique. But if you think at a, at a macro of scale, micro something, sorry, c- communities of small people uh, on a micro scale and in small communities that that makes a lot of sense, but if you think about what we were just talking about, limitate, like you can't know all 8 billion people as individuals (laughs) and you talk about your relationships and your family and connect to them on a, on a deep human level. Mm -hmm. And isn't it refreshing that you can quote unquote be transactional and, you know, not suffer from like not experience the joys, but also not suffer the flaws of of, quote unquote being human (laughs) and market sort of and personalize things in a way that allows us to engage with people at scale.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think they, markets definitely do that. And there isn't anything inherently wrong with markets themselves. They're like very useful tools. I think that the thing that I personally am, I guess, pushing back on or, or like something I would like to see change is I think that at it's at the core, a lot of people, feel their, I guess, safest when they have like this fundamental set of relationships that they know that they can rely on. And they can weather a lot of kind of discomfort or challenge or adversity, given those relationships and specifically that community. And so the thing that I think is, I don't think that, that markets are bad, but markets in many ways, specifically compete with or push against the formation of those tight-knit relating groups and so I think that's one of the things that ends up contributing to us feeling atomized and isolated and and all that sort of thing you know like I don't need all of my needs to be fulfilled by uh, someone that I'm very close to and in fact it's great that you know I can pay someone to you know, fly an airplane that I'm on or, or grow food for me or uh, make a bicycle that I use, you know, like that's great. Um, But in a lot of ways, the fact that markets are so pervasive has meant that it is out competing our kind of abilities to um, hold communities of all kinds together. And like, I would say it's also, it's also out competing that because building communities is not a trivial endeavor. It's quite difficult And when, you know, you have a lot of shiny alternatives, it's very hard to convince, to, to, I guess, continuously bring people together. And things like family traditions and stuff have have always kind of been uh, useful in this regard. But, you know, there's, there's this uphill battle. Like if you've got families, for example, spread across the world or with vastly different kind of work schedules or something like that, all of the reasons that they are in those places and doing those things is at the end of the day somewhat financial, like economic, but it has this resulting impact on the the family community. and so yeah, like markets are good, and um, markets unchecked can be can just make us really unhappy, you know make us really miserable as as groups of people because we are lacking that kind of fundamental safety that has been part of human experience for millennia.
0: So how can we take the good of what markets bring us? Yes. be happy? <laughs> oh. What, 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 what
1: oh, man, this is I mean, this is the question, right? This is the thing that I'm like, this is this is the reason why if I haven't gone to bed by 2am, I haven't gone to bed by 2am. This is the thing that keeps me up like thinking about I mean, one of the things that I think about personally a lot is how do you balance between the kind of rich novelty or or aggregation or whatever of networks and the long-term gains of commitment? So like, that sounds kind of abstract, but I guess the concrete example is, you know, I live in, in San Francisco and San Francisco is a pretty Or the bay area in general is a pretty interesting place because a lot of the people who live there aren't from there and then there are are a lot of people who once they move there do want to live there kind of permanently and there's this kind of conflict or or fundamental problem which is like once you've got people who want to commit to building longer-term relationships how do you actually kind of formalize those commitments or make those commitments stick? You know, the Bay area also has a reputation for being flaky and people are horrendously flaky all of the time because there are so many options for what someone could do at any given moment that, you know, having people be where they say they're going to be is kind of difficult. And there's, there's a few ways of looking at this. One is, is at the community organizer level or the like, community organizer or, or church organizer or family organizer, any sort of anyone who's trying to organize a small, a uh, smallish group of people. And then that's kind of like, what tools do you have available? And there are some tools that already exist. We have some kind of like cultural norms that say, you know, you should stay together. Like um, so, some of the ones around family, um, around uh, marriage and things like that are like, well, look, there's cultural kind of expectations that you'll, you'll stay together and, and you'll kind of, work on those relationships. And one of the things I'm interested in is groups that are building norms around working on and and deeply committing to non-romantic relationships. So uh, co-living relationships or collaborator relationships, things like that. They're definitely not at the state of like what we understand as, for example, marriage today. Marriage is something that is like pretty, as, as a set of commitments, it's been around for a very long time and it's pretty established but yeah like uh at least it from my um kind of perspective from for example the the relationship anarchy uh community relationship anarchy one of the i guess core tenets is not is, is seeing all relationships as fundamentally valuable and not inherently of different kinds or different values so just because one relationship is romantic and one relationship is platonic doesn't necessarily mean that that the romantic one has to be valued over the non-romantic one. And I think that that the kind of ideas of that are definitely influencing a lot of people that I know who are like, well, look, you know this person isn't my romantic partner, but this is someone that I you know, for example, might want to buy uh, property with or I might want to live with for decades or something like that. And exploring those relationships, discussing what those commitments are like, making the commitments kind of uh, as they are necessary, kind of in a, a very incremental person-by-person way. You know, it's it's kind of pretty intense work, but it it's definitely important. Another thing on the, like, on the kind of community organizer side, I always, like, half joke that I should just, like, start a cult. And I, I say this because I actually think that the, criticism or the slur of cult, um, what it means is someone has chosen to make this group, however big it is, more important than their commitment to default society. And I think that's actually threatening to a lot of societal norms. And, you know, say what you you want about like kind of uh, harmful charismatic leaders of cults, it's kind of a separate thing. But if you just think about a group that someone commits to, you know, in a higher sense than they commit to being a a consumer or being a worker or being a citizen that's I I think like one lever that is still available to pull we can't make I mean it's pretty hard to make countries anymore and particularly if you're not doing it on the basis of kind of an ethnic identity so we kind of all of the world got colonized and we're kind of a little bit jaded about worker identity although that's definitely something that uh is is pretty mainstream at the moment of people identifying very strongly with their with their work um but i guess the problem with that is it is still very fundamentally contingent on you continuing to be a good worker right uh so you if you like for whatever reason get sick and you can no longer work forever like you're you're not going to continue to be a part of the community that you Um, we're working in you might still be around it but it's kind of uh your presence in that community is contingent on your ability to contribute to it so that's not really a a useful or or like a a reasonable kind of sustainable identity to build um to build uh, a community around and then the third one i guess would be consumer and that's actually pretty interesting i think that some of the most religion like uh in a positive sense um communities right now that are being built are actually consumer communities and specifically around things like fitness. Um, so like CrossFit and Barry's bootcamp and uh, soul cycle and things like that all do have this kind of like religious aspect to them um, or, or, or religious aesthetics to them or something. And yeah, like they, they can potentially be ways of building kind of communities that withstand uh, the forces of of capitalism, at least in some ways. I don't think that they're perfect. They still have the problem of if you can no longer pay the dues, then you're not allowed in. But, uh, yeah, that that's an avenue that um, potentially uh, community organizers, uh, people who are actually building communities can take. And then if we think about it from the the higher level, it's really the question is if we've decided that that we want markets to be subject to society and not su- society to be subject to markets, then like, how do we actually do that? How do we in practice, re- uh, you know, put markets on a leash? Um, and and for, you know, historically this has been the role of governments and I think that there is still probably plenty of work that can be done in that uh, area, um, like, you know, governments fulfilling this role as a regulator of, of markets in a way that is, you know, protecting people and protecting communities, I think that that's probably not going to be sufficient. And particularly in, in this country, in, in the United States, which was, uh, I guess, ha- has a much stronger culture of reverence for markets um, than, say, uh, Australia or um, Europe or other places. So, yeah, I, I guess even just thinking about this idea of how might uh, markets be subject to society, like I don't think any of the answers that I have right now are, are good enough. But I think that continuing to uh, work on that problem or think about that problem and, and talk about that problem is um, it's kind of the, ne- the next logical step or the, the logical um, kind of follow-on from that.
0: So I have this sort of um, you know, somewhat amateur, but uh, working uh, theory that, um, and it's not mine, but um, that, you know, religion has been uh, unbundled in some sense, both in like, if we're to simplify, sort of a micro you know, community uh, sense. Oh, and that's, you know, what we were talking about like Cycle, CrossFit, you know, all these sort of like communities that pop up that, that take the community role. But then there was also this sort of um, role that religion played, which was uh, sort of not, not only describing our origin, but also just truth generally. And that, that maybe was replaced over time by things like universities and, and, um, you know, uh, media. But that today we've sort of lost this idea of what Eric Weinstein calls a uh, communal sense making institutions. And, uh, and there's this, you know, gaping hole of, of, I guess, yeah, communal sense making in terms of not origin, but also, uh, truth generally do you resonate with this theory? How would you add or edit or add nuance to this theory? Or, or what do you think about the idea of communal sense-making?
1: Yeah. So I do, I guess, agree with this idea that maybe not we've lost communal sense-making, but that it's definitely pretty sick right now. Um, and I actually think one of, those, one of the reasons for that comes from one of the upsides of science, right? And um, science has like had had wonderful kind of promises and and creates wonderful things all the time you know it has given us so much in terms of knowledge and and the ability to use that knowledge and i guess the promise of science was we would be able to by you know like reason and observation understand the world and i think we never really got clear on who that we was and i think I guess the, the problem we run into with science is that having access to the mechanisms of discovering knowledge and creating knowledge, because of the special, like specialization required, it becomes a, uh, a specialized elite activity. And it may be elite because you need specialized tools. It may be elite because you need specialized training. It may be elite because you need to pay the bills and you might not have enough time to go and do science yourself. And, and so what that means is that we have this kind of class of people we call scientists, and the scientists do the science, uh, and then the rest of us kind of, we we mostly consume the science via journalism, and if we, you know, trust that the process is uh, good and, and trustworthy uh, and that the people in it, at the very least, aren't messing it up too much, then we can trust the outcome. But, and, and I think that, like, there are still people that i know who have this very strong belief of science you know there is objective truth that science is discovering and people who reject it are kind of just like either being like dumb or superstitious or something and we run into two problems one scientists are people and the kind of replication crisis crusaders um have been you know discovering this in, in many many ways you know, like if you don't know everything about say nutrition science, but you do know that a bunch of nutrition scientists had their papers retracted, then you're going to start trusting science less because of the way that its representatives acted. So that's one thing is, is we have to kind of trust the people who are doing it, particularly if, if uh, we're not doing it ourselves. And then the second thing is a little bit more nuanced. It's that we ask science to kind of Go away, find us facts or information and bring it back so that society can act on it. But society generally can mostly act on information when that information becomes common knowledge. And common knowledge is, I'm not going to be able to explain it perfectly well, but essentially it's a form of knowledge where I know something and you know something at every level of knowing. So, like, I know that you know that some things are true, and also I know that you know that I know, and like we all know that everybody knows that this thing is true. And when you have knowledge like that, you can make pretty powerful decisions within a society and science because it ends up with such complex answers is really bad at getting turned into common knowledge because you have to kind of explain to everyone like how all of the things work and you have no way of knowing whether any given person in society knows these things so i think what ends up happening and this is also my beef with um uh, a lot of technology particularly like blockchain which is trying to essentially disrupt trust is that at the end of the day unless someone like people aren't actually trusting the science or trusting the technology or whatever there are some very small group of people who would be able to you know read the evidence like the the papers or whatever understand the reasoning trust that each decision was made for a good reason and kind of have a very fairly good idea of how to evaluate that but most people can't do that like I definitely can't do that in many different aspects of science and I have you know like a degree that at least lets me read a lot of kind of technical stuff and so we end up not trusting the writing or or the evidence or trusting the theory or the integrity of the theory or the facts or even necessarily the specific people we trust. Like our idea of the reputation that science has based on what other people kind of say about it and what the general kind of opinion is about it. So I think going, you know, going back to is the collective sense-making apparatus broken? I think that's one of the reasons is that religion, at least the, the um, what I'd call the religions or, or the, the religions with high moralizing gods, which is a category of, of religion that has a lot of kind of moral rules and stuff you know, they don't explain everything perfectly, but they're also pretty simple, right? In in like, I haven't looked at a Bible for ages, but I could probably tell you at least some of the Ten Commandments. Whereas trying to communicate the knowledge that we actually have um, as a result of science is a lot more complicated than that. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't get all the way into common knowledge. And so I actually think that using using religion as a, so you talked about it as uh, a way of kind of agreeing on truth collectively. And I think that that's something that it, that, that was valuable. And I think also is, is in some uh, religions for some things still valuable. Um, like for example, I, I, I think that there are a lot of meditative uh, traditions that actually have more elegant and explanatory models for how internal experience works than a lot of our kind of neuroscience or, or, um, psychology models. But, you know, generally kind of we've got a lot of science about a lot of the other stuff. But yeah, I would just say that the other function that religion has historically had has been uh, this uh, high moralizing gods kind of coordination aspect. And there was a, there's a really wonderful data set that's been just built called Seshat, which is essentially very detailed data about every civilization we know of. Um, and one of their first studies they published based on this data set was about high moralizing gods, the emergence of religions that have big, scary gods that kind of smite you if you do bad things. Um, and they included uh, the Buddhist idea of karma um, in this as well. And basically what they found was that these religions or these specific structures in religion emerged after the creation of, uh, after massive increases in societal complexity, but not before. Um, and so there's this idea that maybe they evolved as a essentially a mechanism of societal control. Like, we don't have enough people to punish everyone who does bad things, but if everybody believes that God is going to punish them for doing bad things, then we've got a pretty cheap coordination mechanism. Um, and that's not to say that this is the only thing that gods are for. There are lots of other purposes, but we we have replaced that in some sense with law um, and policing and um, the legal system. So. I think there's an aspect in which that part of religion has been unbundled as well. I still think there's one part that's missing that uh, particularly in Western society, we don't get anywhere else or or we don't really um, have access to often, which is the um, ritual and kind of mystical experience uh, and various kind of um, collective altered states. I think that, there are definitely some experiences that we might have that would be a bit like that, but religion used to provide that a lot, and it definitely doesn't anymore. So,
0: yeah, this is a big question. <laughs> so, well, so I reject it. Um, not that the other ones weren't, but to what extent or when is truth relative versus when is truth absolute? Slash, how do you, how do you think about?
1: Oh man. Well, so first of all, I kind of want to know what you mean by relative and absolute.
0: Yeah, I guess relative meaning subjective, maybe like you know, I'm like we're all sort of you master group therapy, everyone's sort of sharing their experiences and you're like, Oh, it's your experience is true for you. And then absolutely sort of like, you're know, not just like, you know, physics or, or, or things that are 100% true, but sometimes morally true or yeah. I oh, guess I mean, yeah.
1: Interesting. So are you asking something like, is it possible to have moral truths or something like that?
0: Yeah, sort of. I, I'm asking moral truths. Uh, basically like how, like in society, should, should we, Follow moral truths, or is sort of truth what people tend to think at any given time, and how should we govern ourselves accordingly?
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, so I think I heard a dichotomy there of like is truth something that exists independently all of the time, or is truth something that people are kind of always changing and and like uh, almost like m- not making up but having feel subjectively real at any given moment is that kind of
0: yeah, totally. I mean, another que- question I ask myself is like, what's the difference between me, you know, seeing a beach and me seeing virtual reality of a beach that is like just as good. And like, what is.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you ask a metaphysical question, you'll get a metaphysical answer. Um, my specific, I guess beliefs on this question are all around the, the definition of all of these words. Right. So looking at like, I'm, It feels very kind of intellectually wanky to be like, what even is truth? But I think at at the end of the day, truth is is agreement on something. Um, And it's agreement uh, generally that has some sort of like predictive value. Sometimes it doesn't. I would argue that um, some types of moral truths don't necessarily have predictive value. But having this question of is truth objective, is truth subjective, is kind of like... Uh, it's it's just like a weird dichotomy or something it's like um, the answer is like yes all of it or something like that and and the way that I the best way I like to think about this is uh, taking off to David Chapman who wrote uh, meaningness.com which is truth is both what he calls nebulous and patterned um nebulous in the sense that like nothing is absolute there's no like if if you try and pin reality down, it kind of evaporates away. Like there's there's nothing that's actually kind of like independently, like real and existing and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, if you just live in the world, it's obvious that there are meaningful and tr- and and kind of predictive things going on. So, like, and, and this is a pretty fundamental, I guess, question in 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 all sorts of belief systems in in religions and ideologies and stuff, and those who come down on the side of there is an objective truth end up creating kind of systems to try and explain things, and those who come down on the side of everything's relative tend to end up either doing a lot of navel gazing or being very nihilistic or very kind of existentialist. Kind of, uh, it doesn't matter what you do; you can kind of pick whatever you, truth you want. It's, it's all your own truth, and I think at least. Chapman would say that both of these are a trap and that the reality is a lot kind of squishier than that. And I think that, that this answer says much more about us as humans than it does about the world. I think we have as, as humans, we have a deep need to make sense of things and, and define them. Like even the idea of something being true, like the idea of say physics being true, it's saying, you know, like we, we, Learn about or we discover things in physics through human language and through instruments that we use to measure things. Right, so if we didn't have the kind of capacity to communicate with each other, then physics wouldn't really even make sense to say that it exists. Like you know, as an experiment, as a discipline, or something like that. And I'm I'm horrendously out of my depth because like I shouldn't be talking about physics because I know nothing about you know comparatively nothing about physics, but a lot of other kind of ways of knowing fit this as well a, a body of knowledge is is largely a coordination tool between a bunch of of humans like we we agree on the way that the world is so that we can do something or so that we can act and so if we can avoid falling into the trap of either thinking that everything is objective or nothing is objective or sorry everything's objective or everything's subjective then we can start to see truthfulness or truth or meaning or any of those things as almost like kind of organisms, like living organisms or things to play with. Um, And I think that there is this attitude of playfulness that arises when you kind of come to that position. It's no longer that the world is exactly as you believe it to be, or or is exactly as some perfect uh, agent could imagine it to be, but it's like, well, truth is this game we're playing with reality and we can win and lose. We can get better at the game. Right. But truth isn't inherent to reality. It's just kind of like the game that's happening right now. So yeah, like that's, I I have no idea whether that made any sense at all, but uh, it's definitely a lot kind of, it feels on the inside a lot more reasonable to adopt this attitude that there is truth and it's kind of a constant construction by kind of groups of people and by societies and individuals, um, rather than seeing it as either completely subjective or this kind of fixed immutable thing.
0: Have you, you have any definitive or nuanced views on consciousness?
1: (laughs) Oh man. Do you mean like, is it a thing? Is that the the question?
0: (laughs) Or like, how do we make sense
1: of it? Look, I, it's not, I, I think that like, yeah, the way that we think of like the problem of consciousness is maybe just like not a frame that I, I think about that often. I definitely think there is something fundamentally like beautiful and interesting about kind of like conscious awareness. And in fact, in a lot of the so I I um, am a, a student or a practitioner of quite a few different um, Buddhist and, and tantric teachers, tantric being relating to certain scriptures, not anything to do with tantric sex. Um, but a lot of these teachers uh, and a lot of the teachings talk about everything as being created by an uh, an interplay between, like, awareness and energy or something like that. Awareness being kind of like consciousness the way we could think about it. And so while, like, I couldn't explain to you, like, how it got here or, like, how did we become conscious? I'm sure there's probably a spectrum of, like, you know, there are animals that are less conscious than us, but, like, not there's no binary or something, but that's just my guess. But given that we have consciousness, I think it's, it's in some ways the thing that's creating reality all of the time, reality being almost by definition, the thing that consciousness creates. So (laughs) the best thing I can do is kind of just point in various directions at learning more about these ideas, because I certainly don't have any kind of, lucid explanation of of this particular argument but uh yeah the, the people i can recommend are, are dan brown from the pointing out way and um christopher wallace who wrote tantra eliminated both of whom have uh, explanations of this sort of thing that uh, have made a lot of sense to me but yeah like i don't know man i'm just a human i didn't make the consciousness part <laughs> <laughs> no. i just am it i guess <laughs>
0: <laughs> going back to this idea of of uh, communities and identity. There's one, there's a theory that says that the thing that brings people together, especially at scale, uh, the most, or particularly at scale is a common enemy. I guess the place where we see that are sort of maybe religion or, or or nationalism for sure. Do Mm. do you think, uh, do you buy that or or how how do we coordinate people at scale across, you know, certain values or is that a flawed pretense or,
1: yeah so we definitely coordinate better with a common enemy 100 percent. like common enemies make it a lot easier to get people to, to do things and i would actually say not necessarily common en- enemy but common threat it doesn't need to be a group or, or other people i think almost like you could almost definitionally say that people aren't groups if there isn't either threat or like the, the potential for a lack of opportunity you know Uh, we group ourselves in general because it's beneficial to do so and because we get something out of it, which means by contrast, we would lose something if we didn't have it. Um, And so that's almost, I guess, tautologically true to say that groups function uh, better because of a common enemy. Um, I think the the question that seems to be under that question is do, in order to get some kinds of group cohesion, do we have to sacrifice other kinds? And so, for example, in order to get nation-state co- cohesion, do we have to sacrifice, you know, peace at the, the international geopolitical level? Or in order to get, like, cohesion in, in various cities, do we have to get, like, intercity rivalries or something like that? And I don't know. I, I think that it is definitely possible at in each case to build either, like, identities that don't have a lot of rivalry built in or groups that don't have a lot of rivalry built in or to to base them on, like, uh, non-life-threatening rivalries or something. And I th- actually think that uh, sports are one of the best examples of this. Like, I can have an aggressively, like, fierce love for my sporting team and you can have an aggressively fierce love for your sporting team. And, like, yeah, it, it's at the end of the day, like, it's not, uh, like, nobody's dying over this. I mean, maybe that might happen once in a blue moon, but it's, it's definitely like it's, it's this cohesive force that isn't, doesn't create this kind of like external violence. And so I think that's one answer is, is games, not necessarily sports, that's one, but um, games that allow us to have kind of friendly competition um, while still kind of respecting that, uh, you know, we want those other groups to succeed as well. And the other is, is, I mean, there isn't actually, a a, like, there's no lack of threats that we can come together to, to deal with that, that have nothing to do with, um, other people, you know, like the ones that I, I kind of discussed earlier, like inequality, all of the existential risks and climate change and things like that. These are all enemies. And it's, it's almost like we we need to become a group in order to deal with those things. We need to become, say like a group at the, at the, Supranational level at the the global level, more so than we already are, in order to be able to deal with these things. But Um,
0: do we need to anthropomorphize them? Do we? we Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I actually think that
1: that is one of the big gaps. There, there are a few things missing. One is that a lot of our big like feedback loops, so capitalism as a feedback loop, for example, don't have the impact of all of these things built in. And so, like the, the technical term for that being externalities, the externalities aren't priced into the feedback systems which means that it doesn't hurt as much as it should when you, when you side with the, you know, like when you help global warming on or when you um, create deadly like technologies or something like that in, in part, because you're, you know, because these systems are so big, you're not connected to the people who might um, be hurt by it or the, or the organisms or ecosystems that might be hurt by it. So that's one of them. I think that there is still a lot of value in, when, you know, I mentioned the, the idea of common knowledge before, but uh, in creating very easily understandable common knowledge that that personifies these these risks. And I think that those of us who, like, work in tech and, you know, have fancy degrees and, like, like talking about ideas all day, we kind of underestimate how simple you have to be in order to get an idea to, to the global level, right? Like, you, you really can't, simplify because you have to cross so many different kind of like cultural translations you have to go to people of all different kind of backgrounds and and capacities and and they all have to understand something if you want it to become a knowledge and so I actually think that movies and specifically things like blockbusters um, do a pretty good job of uh, creating this kind of common knowledge and I, I have a, a, a bit of a like newfound not newfound, but like my, my respect for the way that Hollywood shapes our ideas of, of how society works uh, is definitely increased um, having watched uh, some of its workings through my, um, my, my partner's work in, in film. Yeah, so I think that, that Hollywood and, and a few other types of kind of media, the like strong, we create very simple stories that then disseminate pretty well. Um, again, this isn't perfect. Like, you know, we still have media silos that, that that are kind of in geographic and linguistic, um, areas. So, uh, you know, we don't watch it. Like generally people in, in the West don't watch a lot of Chinese cinema. We don't watch a lot of like Bollywood or anything like that. Um, and so there are ways in which we're fragmented in that way, but it's definitely pretty powerful. And then, Yeah, I I think there's also a thing where there are more structures to be, to emerge and to be created above the corporate level, above the national level. And I don't exactly know how, you know, I don't have the plan for this exact uh, at all. Um, And and trying to make it non-totalitarian or non-authoritarian is like very difficult. But I think that, you know, we're only kind of emerging into this idea and not everyone is like, it's, it's, distributed unequally um that we are one society or we have one planet and and we're all interconnected in that way and so i think that meme being spread further is is kind of necessary but not sufficient for us to be able to tackle these problems together but you know certainly climate change becoming a really big threat in people's in people's eyes and and and, you know actually threatening us in really meaningful ways is is I think going to do some of this work. I just don't like, I don't know what the specifics are of of how it might look and how that, that organization might look um, after we've digested the threat that it presents.
0: There are two ideas I want to run by you um, that are somewhat related. So this is one quote that's something along the lines of, you know, we have, um, you know, paleolithic, emotions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And godlike
0: godlike technology. Yeah. And, that's whole idea. and then there's this idea of like, there's lots of things that we were wired for that don't relate to how we live today. You know, namely like a, a positive, sum abundance world. <laughs> um, I guess I'm curious for when like things that we don't understand intuitively because they're not wired for like sort of like markets or, I mean, there's lots of like, different ideas. When do we sort of, uh, or like inequality, for or like jealousy, for example. You know, um, you know, we're living better than ever, yet we're you're like economically, yet we're we're unhappy, partially because we see other people doing better than mm-hmm. us. When do we sort of redesign society around the way that we were wired, versus try to upgrade, if not directly genetically, uh, then by you know institutions or or
1: yeah. Or, so it's, it's kind of like, do we? Do we try and shape the people we need for the institutions we have or institutions we need for the people we have? So the answer over a long enough time scale has to be both, right? Um, it's this kind of constant um, integration. Um, but I think that at least my perspective is that right now in the time period that we're in the, in the period we are in, in, in um, the evolution of human society, that, we've been on this expansion of the, uh, the institution forcing the the individual to change. And so I guess my, my retort to that would be, okay, well, now it's in, individual's time to, to get some back. And you see that with things like the paleo movement with a lot of like attachment parenting, at least amongst, you know, highly, um, kind of, privileged and hyper intellectual uh communities that i'm a, a part of uh this idea of being very against coercion and and um being very uh connected to your intuitions and impulses and stuff is definitely something that is is growing and so you know if i were to look at the, at this the time scale of centuries right i'm i I'm, i don't live as long as an as a civilization does civilizations you know live quite a bit longer than i do then I would say that there is, you know, this process of, of institutions uh, being shaped in order to create the, you know, like to be adaptive for humans and then the humans education and culture and, and genetics and things like that, adapting to fit the institutions. I will say that for things like, like, so for natural genetic evolution, the one issue we have is genetic evolution does not work on the timescale that our current technological evolution works. So with that alone, there would be an argument for trying to make the institutions adapt to the humans and not the other way around because it simply doesn't work that fast. And then, you know, you could maybe say, well, look, we can just genetically engineer the humans. It'll be fine. But like, I I would worry that we would, we would um, essentially be very naive about it and make a lot of mistakes that make our society fragile very quickly and i think that you know for example a lot of different interventions that we do are already doing that uh the the myriad ways in which we change people that are that kind of run short of of genetic engineering and i think we have for the last i mean even even the last kind of 100 years or so of medicine and education and like child rearing and stuff we have tried to uh essentially like educate people and 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 bring people up to be citizens and and members of society in a way that fits into society. And I mean, we're a little bit fucked up because of it, right? (laughs) Um, I think that there are, there are so many um, ways in which we have domesticated ourselves uh, or, or society has domesticated us, and we've domesticated each other that are pretty harmful and make us sick and make us unhappy. And, you know, obviously some of the the benefits we get out of that domestication, that collective domestication are useful. But, you know, right now I think that the right direction to go is um trying to turn down the domestication a little bit and kind of listen to the animal parts of us um and, and kind of let them be a little bit more important for a while.
0: And can you sort of draw out a little bit what that might look like?
1: Yeah. So, oh man, you're going to get to some very specific opinions I have. Um, Please. Yeah. So I guess the, fir- the easiest way to think of this is what are the sets of behaviors that we suppress in humans as they get older and, and what are the cultural uh, like microcultural um kind of, uh, behaviors that we either we don't have as much because they've been outcompeted competed by something else or that we've said are bad and wrong and, and, and um, have generally suppressed. Um, and so to be pretty specific, I think that there are a lot of parenting and child rearing practices and also practices so- associated with things like childbirth that have come from very institutional mindsets and have just made everybody involved, like, stressed, sick, and miserable. So things like, uh, it's it's very hard to believe now, um, but there used to be a time when a woman would give birth and they would immediately take the baby away and, uh, like, go and do stuff and clean them and, and whatever. And the idea was to let the mother rest. And, like, from an animal perspective, that's super fucked up because, because there's all sorts of, like, biological processes that are going on at that moment that have to do with attachment and imprinting and loving relationships and bonding and stuff that all happen at that, at that uh, moment, right, right after child's born. And we kind of have this, like, so behaviors like that or, or, or interventions like that, um, that tend to influence how people relate to each other and and particularly like children and families and, and parents and stuff relate to each other. That are pretty, I guess the the things we we think are normal are actually pretty r- weird from an evolutionary perspective, and these are just like anything that you know in, involves essentially like training very small children to suck it up, like you know training babies to like just deal with being alone and and crying themselves to sleep and things like that. All of these are things that were ideas that we uh, that emerged, uh, I think, roughly in the nineteen hundreds or so, that you know, were not practiced in a lot of other times in, in human history, are not practiced in many other countries in, in the world, um, and that have kind of contributed to this perspective of, like, parenting being stressful and and awful and sleep-depriving and all these sorts of things. And a lot of this actually comes from, I don't want to just, like, simplify it into patriarchy, but a a system of power whereby certain people with certain types of, quote-unquote expertise were uh, had their views privileged over the experiences of the person that was directly affected so what I mean by this is is we have this huge prestige um, attribute given to doctors in our society and you know I think it was possibly even higher um, in the 20th century and so we had this view that like that doctors and and the medical establishment knew best and and psychologists and and all these other professionals know best and so uh like a, a woman who you know might, she might be young she might be stressed out uh she may you know earlier not have been very educated she's kind of just being told what to do and and uh, told what's quote-unquote best for her and and, and for a baby and things like that weirdly enough uh, and, and actually no I, this kind of goes back to this idea or, or this kind of this idea that science has the only way of knowing and that scientific experimentation and the, the process and institution of science are the only way we know things. And this was pretty pervasive. You know, this, this definitely influenced a lot of, of the way that society worked for a very long time and still does. So what we end up with was, you know, as, say, someone who is is a parent or uh, like a mother or a father – you don't know anything you know like you you are not qualified to to know things about you know children or babies or whatever the thing is and what we didn't know was that actually they do it's just kind of more like it's it's embodied knowledge um and so it's knowledge that essentially evolution has given us over a very long period of time because that was the thing that helped ensure our survival and so i think that kind of embodied knowledge in fact, the, the fight between embodied knowledge and institutional knowledge has been one of the things that has created a lot of these traumas of domestication, I'll call them. And so I I touched on, on how that influences like child rearing and childbirth and things like that. Um, but it's also, I think true in, um, uh, a lot of healthcare, um, you know, we're more likely to to take medications even if they might be pretty dangerous to us, or have surgery even if it's going to be dangerous to us, um, because we trust. You know, we're, we're kind of told, "Well, this is the way that that knowledge is produced, and and these people are right, and we've decided in our society that they're right." That isn't to say that they aren't right; they might be right, but we we haven't necessarily had this like a way of understanding that that the embodied forms of knowledge are also potentially um, useful and, and valid. Um, and so, yeah, I guess specific things are, I have so many beefs about school that I'm not going to go into right now, but there are many of us on Twitter who jokingly, uh, not so jokingly refer to it as child prison. But I think that a lot of the, the relationships we have to coercive institutions start with institutionalized schooling. And there are a lot of harms that get perpetuated because of the way that schools work and the relationships um, that we have to the institutions of school. I also think that there's, there's a similar thing with work and specifically like the, the, the idea that of of professionalism or that we only have, you know, as, as a professional or a worker or something that we're only really allowed to be a, a part of ourselves. We can't be a fully, you know, dimensional human um, where we're an employee or a worker or a professional. And so I think that's that's another area where, um, like, I would love to see experimentation with professional cultures that there's, there's kind of the cliche of bring your whole self to work, but I actually mean, like, modes of organisation where people actually can do that and they're protected economically and they're protected socially in order to be able to do that. And then, yeah, so I touched on kind of education um, specifically in education there's a lot you know a lot that can be done in terms of um, embedding children into a community and helping them feel useful and somewhat independent and and helping them kind of grow in that rather than kind of putting them in a, a fake place where the 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 games are made up and the points don't matter for you know twelve years of their lives and then expecting them to to directly shift into. Being someone who does useful stuff, I think that you know we've had lots of models in history where we've had apprenticeship models and things like that, but uh, yeah, I would really love to see experimentation with ways of or, or forms of education that focus more on becoming a, a member of a group and a member of society in relationship to others rather than as a subject or a uh, a student someone who is acted upon so yeah, there's a, there's a whole ton of wide-ranging things. I also think that there's a lot of work we need to do in in terms of both doing therapy uh, to heal these sorts of things, and, and therapy not just talk therapy, but all sorts of of healing um, practices. And also then I think embedding those ways of healing into a culture that uh, you know is self-sustaining, uh, in order to kind of you know get ourselves back to a reasonable state or a pre. Uh, pre-domesticated state or something like that so yeah there's there's lots of different I guess ways of looking at this this problem and I really hope that there are like lots of different groups who are working on all different aspects of it.
0: what have you found most uh, compelling uh, or, or or most effective in terms of healing uh, that you think could work for people at, at a certain scale or like what what what
1: do you mean like what kinds of therapies scale? Well, is that, is that kind of so what that
0: you... therapy or institutions or or like if, if, if the goal is to, I think it was number two of, you know, de-traumatize or, or help people yeah. feel like, how do we do that scale? So
1: I mention I mentioned a therapeutic culture because I actually think that's therapy therapeutic practices are ultimately relational and mental health is ultimately relational. Like how we feel is, uh, something that is exists in relation to others um and in relation to our role in our groups and our roles in society and stuff. And so I actually think that a lot of these these ways in which we're stuck as a society needs to be unstuck by like small group or one-on-one or like you know very, very intimate relational practices. And I can I can you know describe some of the ones that I'm I'm referring to one that I think is very useful. Well, actually I'll, I'll back up for a second, say that, you know, for every piece of advice is equal and opposite advice. And I think that, that uh, part of the skill of people who are good at, at healing is knowing which kinds of therapies to use um, for which people and which kinds of issues. Um, and so I guess I'll describe things that I think relevant to patterns that I see in, in the communities that I'm part of, in the groups that I'm, I'm part of, but I, you know, they're in no way the the one-size-fits-all answer to everybody's um, kind of uh, problems, and, and, in, and they specifically wouldn't be the things I, I suspect would work for uh, groups uh, that have different kinds of problems. So to be explicit about it, um, in the Bay Area, uh, I think that uh, at least in a lot of the groups I'm part of, uh, there's like a, a majority are, are men, um, and you know both men and women tend to be very cerebral and focused on kind of uh thoughts over over feelings um and so that's the context within which i'm talking um in terms of these therapies i'm not I, i'm not trying to make a claim about every type of of group or every type of person but for those groups um things like uh gendlin's focusing have been very useful which is Uh, I guess there are like workshops and stuff you can do, but there's also like an audio book that's like 15 bucks or something uh, where he kind of leads you through it. It's a practice that is basically just helping you identify the sensations in your body and then map them to feelings. And particularly for people who their entire lives were told that feelings weren't important or that they were illegitimate or unwanted in some way, that can be really helpful. Uh, Circling is also a practice that is, um, uh, I guess it's kind of related, but it, it's about essentially naming the uh, somatic meaning felt, felt sense experiences that are going on at any moment. So, yeah, those two are pretty useful. There's definitely there's also like the authentic relating kind of movement, and um, there's a whole host of of practices that people use associated with that. And I think also there are. A lot of interesting things to be learned from attachment theory and specifically looking at malformed attachments because I think they're you know that's something that is pretty common like uh dysfunctional attachments styles or something maybe that's what they're called and yeah there are a lot of books on that and you can kind of read up and see if any of it um, resonates with you and and there are then like exercises to think about and and practices to think about the other thing is there are a lot of Practices that are explicitly aimed at healing uh, traumas. Trauma specific have a kind of specific meaning, and it's it's like experiences that you didn't get to fully emotionally react to, and thus you kind of in some way are like stuck and frozen in that moment without really a concrete sense that it's in the past. And you know, not everybody has you know a ton of traumas, but a lot of people will have at least some, and. While obviously there are a lot of people who are professional therapists that deal with this sort of thing and that that work is really valuable, you know, one of the things I would love to see is communities where people are training themselves in how to hold space for their friends' problems and and how to hold space for their friends as they process their own, you know, triggers or flashbacks or whatever um, and help them, you know, grieve and help them uh, fully digest those experiences. And again, this isn't like, this can actually be pretty dangerous. It's not like without risk at all. And so I wouldn't, you know, like it's not like you should walk to like your, your, your friend with like the strongest PTSD, you know, and go like, yo, I'm going to hold some space for you. Like, this is going to turn out great. But it's definitely like, it's almost like there are, there are aspects of like emotional first aid that I think it would be wonderful if a lot of people had these skills and were able to apply them helping people that they care about um, because I think that, you know, professional therapy is, is wonderful. Professional therapists are wonderful, but a we are limited by, you know, you are limited by like the cost of them or like whether your insurance will pay and all that kind of complex stuff. But then also they are just, they, they are humans that you at the end of the day are, are paying to be there. And there is often something very different about addressing something that made you feel um, profoundly hurt or profoundly unloved or profoundly isolated within the context of a relationship with somebody that you feel cares about you a lot. So yeah, those are, those are kind of practices that the ones I mentioned earlier and then the, the general approach, I guess, of, of helping people digest traumas that, um, you know, these are things that I learned. These are things that a lot of my friends learn and that I hope that, or it would be wonderful if, you know, v- we collectively, you know, everyone in in society could grow a culture that uh, made it more normal for people to build these skills and to be valued in in their communities for these skills. And, you know, where a lot of us did that and it wasn't just um, relegated to, you know, professionals that we might see an hour a week.
0: Yeah. One thing I'll ask you about is this concept of some people sort of, use this phrase somewhat tongue-in-cheek but somewhat seriously of like ideas that are sort of outside the matrix or outside the realm of accepted you know accepted discussion and paul graham had he's taken a lot of flack on twitter recently but he had this tweet where he's like if you're gonna you know have innovative thoughts you're they're effectively outside the mainstream and you're as a result going to offend people
1: mm.
0: how do you think about sort of the concept of like the matrix of accepted ideas Uh, and another like Nadia uh, has this blog post that ideas are just like, or people are just hosts for ideas or something that's related, but how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, every society has the set of acceptable thoughts or acceptable, like worldviews and then the fringe worldviews and then the, the taboo worldviews. And like, that's, that's something that uh, we have, um, you know, like develop, that's one of the kind of aspects of the, uh, kind of group coordination immune system that's evolved over a long time. And so, yeah, like, I think that we have, we have taboos. Yes. Like, like society has taboos and some of those taboos, uh, exist for reasons that make sense to us. And some of those taboos make, you know, the reasons that they exist don't make sense to us, or they might be actively harmful or something like that. I mean, yeah, breaking those taboos or going against them is going to be costly. Yeah. And should you do it anyways? I don't know. It depends. Like, do you have enough kind of resources in your life? And I, I mean, both like emotional resources and like career capital or financial resources or whatever you want to call any of the ways that you like make sure that you're that you're kind of economically safe. Uh, yeah, like you can just, like decide whether or not to be public about those, you know, those taboos. And like, there is an idea that like, I, I, I wish it weren't true, but I think it kind of is uh, that you, you get assigned some amount of like weirdness points that like the way that people evaluate you has, you know, if you're, if you're like a lot like them, but then you've got like one thing different then they'll be like, Oh, that's okay. This is just, they're a little bit quirky. But then if every single thing about you is different from them, then you just, like you kind of register as having less personhood or something like that. And like, I don't want it to be true because I want to be able to do all, you know, I want everyone that I know that's working on interesting um, improvements to the world to be able to kind of experiment with all these weird and wonderful things. And at the same time, I think it's probably true that at least to get adoption or to get approval from people, you need to start with what they understand and have at least some of the things that, that you're doing be communicated in or or analogized to things that they understand um, and, and trust. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that a lot of the things that I think about don't tend to be too far out of the, the acceptable things to think. And, and also that I have a few like, you know, identity markers or whatever that mean that there are some things I'm allowed to think that some other people aren't allowed to think and stuff like that. And like, yeah, that's, I mean, it sucks. And I don't know what to do about that. At the same time, it's kind of always been that way in some way, shape or form. And, um, and some of those taboos are very helpful and necessary. Um, they have, you know, this like cultural immune defense mechanism kind of role. So yeah, I don't, I don't know, like <laughs> choose your weirdness wisely or something like use your, like budget your weirdness points. Um, I
0: like that as
1: a, as many of us can't, right? You know, like I am lucky enough that I have a lot of the 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 things, you know, like a lot of aspects of my life where I don't have to spend weirdness points and many people do just by virtue of living, right?
0: What do you think is the highest leverage way, and if we talked about it already if to just summarize it, um to make us more positive some or to create situations in which people are more likely to want to collaborate uh, instead of have sort of a scarcity mindset,
1: like, like one
0: approach could be making sure that there's so much that there's not things to be scarce, you know, scarce over. like economic growth, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like you you ask kind of a pretty practical question in terms of like what's the highest leverage thing, and and one of the answers I have is is not practical in the sense that you could go off and implement it tomorrow, but it's one of the ways that we're zero sum. Or well, one of the reasons we are zero sum is because we have we're embroiled in competitions for actually scarce resources, you know, like, um, you know, there's not enough um food or there's not enough, I don't know, mates or something like that, like, you know, that it's something we're actually competing about because in the real world there aren't enough of them. Um, and and we do still have some of these competitions, but we have a lot of them where we used to have that and now we don't, but we still do have a lot of zero sum competitions in part because. We have these status competitions and humans always like to compete for status. And status is in some ways, you know, like a ranked competition is always zero sum. Like there will be a winner and there will be losers and there'll be people who are ordered in some way in the status competition. But one of the things that that could be done is is changing from a a win-lose status game to either the kind of status game where you get status because I give you status and I also have it. So we kind of, everyone gets, I guess, lifted up or, or more likely that uh, kind of diversification of status games. Um, and I think that the, the subculture, the emergence of subcultures in like the sixties and, and even ongoing today is definitely something that has actually done this. Like, you know, I can get status from my previous uh, life as a, as a body painter cause I was, you know, one of the best in the world at it. But like, you know, the, the body painting subculture does not contain everybody, right? But it's still meaningful to, to kind of um, compete for status within those, those cultures. So, like, essentially, ha- you know, creating more status games that people can choose amongst I think potentially could be one way of breaking this, this uh, 0 sumness. And then the other is, is dismantling f- false or imagined scarcity. Um, And so I think some of that is at a societal level and some of that is at an individual, like kind of psychological level, but oftentimes we feel like we have scarcity when we don't. And that causes us to believe that things are limited when they're not. Um, And like, I, you know, I almost wonder like if you look at highly competitive Um, aggressive business practices that uh, create monopolies and that destroy the competition and, and crush everybody else, all that sort of thing. I, I sometimes I jokingly wonder how much of those impulses come from like very deep personal pain (laughs) um, on the part of like the founders or or, um, kind of uh, leaders of, of these, these projects you know, like that's an oversimplification. I don't think that's entirely true, but I think there's, there's a little bit of, of truth to like this idea that often our, our very competitive, aggressive natures, like zero sum natures come from trying to get needs met that we actually don't know how to meet or that, that we don't realize we can meet ourselves. So, yeah, and that goes back to the kind of therapeutic stuff again, but yeah, that's just kind of one idea. I think there's, there's a lot more that can be done with that, that question. And I, I don't, I appreciate the question as a way of uh, directing my thinking towards, yeah, towards how to shift those paradigms.
0: My last two questions, uh-huh. and, and they're sort of so broad that maybe they're sort of honing it in on some level. as your, But I wanted, we, we touched on the education a bit, but I, want, uh, I wanted to see if you could get a little bit deeper in terms of like practically what might that look like in terms of how, how they'd be different from how we are educated uh, today. Um, and then also, could you talk about how you we talked about cults a little bit earlier, how you envision religion sort of shaping up uh like do you think that it would be like this great fragmentation or or maybe barbell what is like you know a big emerging one, and mm. then like all these micro religions?
1: yeah, so like all right well i will I will give it a go. I think uh talking about education and how I envision education, so stepping back a bit. I want to just like acknowledge how weird it is that we think that the current way that we, that we take care of our children is normal. If we, if we don't think about it as education, if we don't think about it as, as teaching skills or whatever, but if you think about like how children and and young adults spend time, it's like really weird, right? We, we put them in large groups that, generally have to like do things that are very biologically unfriendly. They have to sit a lot and they have to not like, they have to suppress a lot of impulses and then they have to do stuff that's generally made up that someone else kind of decided was relevant because they think it might be relevant in the future. So with the assumption that school is really weird, I, I, I want to think about like, what would it look like if we didn't think of children as separate beings that needed to be dealt with separately, but rather as, practicing members of different group sizes of different sizes of groups. So practicing members of families, practicing members of small communities, um, practicing members of larger societies. And I think school, when it was developed, focused on the larger society side, like how can we make good citizens? How can we make good workers? But actually I think that that's at least in the near future going to be kind of less relevant as you know, the market's kind of fragmenting everything and there are lots of kind of diverse ways of thinking about what we could be doing with our lives. So the the specific way that I kind of envision schooling happening, and again, I'm going to preface this with context. Like I'm referring to my context with the, the kinds of people that I know, you know, in the environment that we're in with the kind of educational resources and things like that we have available is thinking of like kids as kind of, Getting to become part of a group that is doing things, and having explicit kind of mentors that help them decide what they need to learn in order to get there. And you might also have things like classes like you know maybe there's a class that's kind of the way that we would currently do, you know like an after school class, like an extracurricular class, but you know by and large, you know you would be quote unquote, working in in groups doing stuff that your group needs. And playing a lot, right? And playing in groups and playing with other groups of of kids. So, yeah, I guess, like, I think, like, it's kind of like an unschooling model that I'm pointing to and a bit of a, like, village school model. Uh, And it's kind of very dependent on the adults that are around. But, you know, I could imagine a a schooling setup where essentially anything that you need to learn skill-wise, you're learning in context um, of becoming a, a member of the group that you're in um, the community that you're in and you know you get to do stuff like play which I think is you know, hugely undervalued um, in the way that at least I was um, schooled I don't you know know if it's drastically changed and so that's schooling um, and then just like tiptoe over to your last thing about a, a religion how I think religion will um, play out I think if I just look at what is, religions are becoming, are are still incredibly important, Um, and particularly the big religions, not so much in the context that you and I are in, but within, like, you know, like Christianity and Islam and um, Hinduism and stuff are still huge aspects of the lives of billions of people, and I think they will continue to be. Um, And I don't have any, like, specific predictions about how that's going to influence kind of the global sense-making apparatus or global whatever, you know, like I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I have no idea. <laughs> if I think about this on a much more contextual and practical level in, in my own context, I think that I could see the emergence of things that are like quasi-religious that um, have this, you know, like climate crusader or, or existential crusader bent where or people are committing themselves to specific missions um, in service of the world. Um, and that there is kind of a religious flavor to that, and I think that there are already some aspects of some organizations that do ha- that are a bit like this, but I would expect to see some more and then I also think in general that like some religions, specifically buddhism and and Indian yoga um, have given us amazing contemplative practices and I think that independently of religion or as well as religion they 'll continue to be important, and things that we use to navigate the world.
0: It seems like a great place to close. Thank you for what may be the most longest, <laughs> longest in the interesting episode uh, I've done for, for people who are fascinated and who've made it all this way and who want to learn more uh, about you and about some of these ideas. Uh, obviously there's a lot of places, but what, what's one place where you might, you might point them.
1: I'm going to cheat and say two. Uh, you can either follow me on Twitter, which is, the word autotranslucence, except the A is the at symbol. And then the other option is my blog, which is autotranslucence.wordpress.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for for chatting with me. This is is really enjoyable.
1: No worries. Thank you so much.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.